everyone and welcome to another episode of or installment it's not an episode not a podcast to another installment of the bat around i'm your host paul valley with me as always is my spectacular extraordinary co-host zach goodman zach how you doing today man i am great we got the uh, ravens pats on sunday night football tomorrow that should be a great game and it's gonna be a lot of fun yeah i'm i'm, I'm excited for that I, the first time in what it feels like forever that i'm actually pretty confident uh, with the Ravens going up against the Patriots and that pretty terrible defense. But we'll talk about that later towards the end of the show. Right now, we're going to discuss baseball. Hey, it's cold outside. I'm getting used to it. I'm getting used to it. I'm never going to like it, but I'm getting used to it. Welcome to the Bat Around, everybody. We're coming to you live from the Chesapeake Employers Insurance Studio. Got a lot to talk about today. Uh, the first thing we want to talk about is a big-time hire in Major League Baseball, and that was the Marlins hiring Kim Ng as their general manager. First woman hired as a general manager in all of American male professional sports. Uh, so this is a big deal, Zach. Uh, this is a woman who has been in line for a job for seemingly ever. Uh, there were talks about her potentially getting a general manager job as far back as 2007. Finally happens in 2020. Uh, so she'll be taking over, running, helping Derek Jeter run the uh, Miami Marlins down there in Miami, uh, starting with the 2021 season. What are your thoughts on this, Zach? Well, she has a lot of experience, 30-plus years, they've said, and she has three World Series rings. So she's got a lot of experience in many different areas, and she's been in scouting, and she's been in, you know, as assistant general manager, and she's been around. You know, this is not someone who has been interviewed for the first time and got the job. She's not some hotshot 30-year-old who you know, is a first-time GM. This is someone who really knows the game and has been around a while and definitely deserved a job in baseball as a GM. And I'm, you know, I'm super glad the Marlins could be the one to give it to her. And she's 51 years old now. She's interviewed for a long time, like you said. And there's rumors that she even interviewed uh, for the Orioles in 2018 when Mike Elias was hired. And uh, there are some conflicting rumors about that, but it sounds like she probably did. And she was probably at least a candidate they were considering. So I'm just really glad to see this. I think it's a big step in baseball for many different areas. Well, yeah, and she she definitely was at least mentioned with the Orioles because I remember her name being brought up several times back when they were looking for the GM after letting go of... Uh after the expiring contracts were not renewed with Buck Showalter and Dan Duquette. So, uh, Kim Ng, congratulations to her getting that big-time job as a general manager of the Miami Marlins. Big step forward in professional sports for women as a whole. We've already seen uh, women uh, coaches in the NBA, referees in the NFL. Uh, I think there's some coaches in the NFL as well. So, this is a big step forward and... You know, it's it's long overdue. So congratulations to Kim Ng and congratulations to Major League Baseball as a whole for taking a nice step forward there for the game. Uh, Trey Mancini, uh, he, we all know, uh, announced back in March that he had colon cancer, missed the entire 2020 season, um, went through chemotherapy, ended this chemotherapy about five, six weeks ago. Um, and he's been saying that he's been working out five days a week, hitting five days a week. He said if spring training started right now, he would be ready to go. Big sign for the Orioles. Um, that's a lineup that, that showed a lot this year. And if they get Trey Mancini back hitting in the heart of that order, uh, it's only going to help the ball club. I think this is a big deal for the Orioles. Big deal for Trey Mancini. You know, if he never played 
baseball again. If he never saw another pitch, but never played another inning, but was cancer-free the rest of his life, it's, it's a success story, right? But the fact that he could come back in 2021, having only missed a 60-game season, and hopefully pick up where he left off, uh, where he had a 35 homer, 38 double season in 2019. That would be big for the Orioles, but more so big for Trey Mancini. Yeah, I mean we love Trey in Baltimore. You know, he's it, this is awesome for him. I'm so glad he got through it. And you know, obviously we knew he was going to get through it. Just a matter of when. And he's going to be ready. It sounds like for 2021, which is awesome. He's going to, you know, it's going to take him some time to regain his strength a little bit and get the swing back. And but I, you know, all the confidence in the world will do it. He started hitting. He said mid October, so he's been at it for a little while now, just getting the swing back. I saw some videos of him in the cage, and he looks like Trey Mancini. You know, same swing, same kind of thing going on. He looks ready to go. I mean, like like you said, he'd be ready to go for spring training if it happened today um but you know this is going to be big for the orioles like you said brandon hyde said all year we're missing our best player and we still improved our winning percentage you know from from 2019 so brandon hyde knows exactly how it's going to go and trey mancini's plugged back into that lineup in 2021 he's a big piece he can play you know the corner outfield spots and and first base as well which i think he'll you know, probably play a little bit more of in 2021, but that will be huge in the lineup for the Orioles, and it really makes this Orioles lineup even more dangerous than it was this year. Well, I think that he'll get, and I was talking with Stan, the fan, he's going to be on the 10-20. I was talking with him last night, and we agree. Uh, he's probably going to get a lot of time at DH to start the year, um, just because you don't want to push it. You know, I mean, now look, he's going to have an entire offseason. Hopefully, uh, we know that things with COVID are ramping back up. Hopefully, he's going to get a full spring training but they're going to want to get him get his feet wet. You know, let him let him get four bats a game, but maybe DH three times, two or three times a week and then once the season he really gets you rolling along, he gets full strength, get him back out of first base a majority of the time. So that's a big deal for the Orioles and it makes me excited for the 2021 season. Not that I wasn't already excited, but it makes me excited because that lineup was pretty good and it's just going to get a lot better. Uh, and then you have Ryan Mountcastle, and then at some point maybe Adley Rutschman. You're really starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel, and Trey Mancini is a big part of that. So uh, that's a big deal for the Orioles. Uh, another big deal for the Orioles, uh, they promoted Chris Holt to their pitching coach and director of pitching. Now this happened two weeks ago. Um, I, I did a little 15-minute update last week while I was down visiting my father down in Fenwick, Delaware. Um, but we didn't really get in-depth about it. So he's going to oversee all pitching throughout the organization as well, serving as a, as the in-dugout pitching coach for the regular season. Darren Holmes, bullpen coach, promoted to assistant pitching coach. So the Orioles are still looking for that roving minor league pitching instructor to kind of take the, the place uh, of what Chris Holt was doing. But Chris Holt is going to be that guy's boss, basically. Yeah, I think Chris Holt should be the one who gets to make that hire. I know that's not really how it might work, but I think he should be because Chris Holt has done a lot for the Orioles in just a few years of being here. And, you know, obviously you look at John Means, and John Means credits Chris Holt for so much of the work that he's improved on, his changeup, his fastball getting better and hitting the right spots. That's all Chris Holt, according to John Means. And I'm sure you're going to see a lot more of these guys who come up through the system like Grayson Rodriguez, like D.L. Hall, who are going to be crediting him and, and making them better because he was down there at that Bowie camp teaching all of these guys his different things. And Chris Holt's just a renowned guy. He's just fantastic. I'm glad he's in the dugout. You know, it's it's starting to become time that the Orioles are going to need a guy that can help the major league team as well as the minors. So I'm glad he's there, but I definitely think he should be making a hire, maybe someone he knows that can help run the rest of the minor leagues while he's in the majors. Well, and he's certainly going to have a lot of input 
for that. I, I, I mean, it's a, it's a big deal. If he's in charge of all the pitching, he should be in charge of getting the minor league roving instructor. Um, Orioles still looking to find a replacement for Jose Flores. Now, Freddie Gonzalez was uh, a candidate for that Tigers managerial position. Uh, they hired A.J. Hinch, so Gonzalez remains with the Orioles. He's probably the most likely to take over as third base coach. I don't think they're going to make an outside hire. I think it's just going to be somebody to take over those duties in addition to what he already does. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, another big deal, and we talked about this with Joe Trezza two weeks ago. Uh, and he said he was about 50-50 on whether the Orioles would pick up the Jose Iglesias option. They did for $3.5 million. Um, that's a big deal because it solidifies your infield defense, solidifies a bat that's going to be in the top third of your order. Uh, he batted third m- most of the year for the Orioles when he was healthy. Uh, hit 370 this past year, plays gold glove caliber defense. I think that's a big deal for the Orioles. You need good defense behind the young pitching staff. I think the addition of Yolmer Sanchez uh, at second base gives them one of the top double play combinations in the game right now. Now, what does this mean for Hanser Alberto? And for me, I think it means that we've seen the last of Hanser Alberto in an Orioles uniform. He's due anywhere from 2.3 to 4.1 million through arbitration. Uh, I don't think he'll get to 4.1 million because uh, he's he's too much of a one dimensional player, but. The Orioles, if they have a, a cheaper option who's a better player in their eyes, I I think that they're going to go with that. And if it's stressing defense, and that's where Trey Mancini becomes even more important because he adds some firepower back to your lineup, and then you can afford to lose a guy like Hanser Alberto and sacrifice a little bit on the offensive side with Yomar Sanchez to get some solid, solid defense behind your young pitching staff up the middle. Yeah, in my opinion, if I have the, the choice – between a guy who is glove first or bat first, I always choose glove first when it comes to middle infielders. I just think it's more important. You need to be able to protect your young pitchers and not be letting balls get through the hole where they shouldn't be. And and that's something that Iglesias really helped out with last year. Michael Elias said it was a no-brainer to pick up the option. And, you know, there's probably a little more that went on behind the scenes we didn't know about than a no-brainer. But... It, it makes sense from a fan's perspective for sure because he did do so much for the team. You know, in 146 games last year in 2019, he hit 288. So this is not a guy who's really going to hit badly, you know, for the next year. He, he's not going to revert to his earlier performances back in 2011. 13, wherever you want to talk about. You know, he, he got better as a hitter, clearly, and he hit 370 this year. Not going to hit 370 in 162 games, but they might not even play 162 games next year. So this is a no-brainer, in my opinion, as well. But, yeah, Yomer Sanchez, glove-first guy. Alberto's not. I'm taking him all day. Well, and the, the thing about Iglesias, and what I, I I look back at Omar Vizquel, and Omar Vizquel, when he, when he first got started in the big leagues, he was glove-first, bat-second, maybe even bat third, uh, if you consider his speed. He um, And then as he got into his late 20s, early 30s, he became a far better hitter, uh, became a 300 hitter a bunch of different times. And I look at Jose Iglesias, he's about 30 years old, 30, 31 years old, and he's that's when a lot of players hit their prime. Their best years usually come between 27 and 33. And you're looking at him right in the thick of that. The bat's starting to, to show signs of being worthy of what, People thought that the Glacius was going to be. And if he can come back, and I don't need him to hit 370. It, it would be freaking phenomenal. But if he hits 270, 280, but plays that caliber defense, gets on base for the Orioles, that's all I need. That's all I need from, from Jose Iglesias. And, you know, that's, that's a big deal for the Orioles, along with Trey Mancini. So moving on to Major League Baseball as a whole, 
AJ Hinch got hired as the manager of the Tigers. Um, that's a little bit of old news. But then last week, Alex Cora gets hired um, as a manager of the Red Sox. And this, to me, Zach, was a foregone conclusion. It was rumored from the second he was let go by the Red Sox that it was temporary, that he was going to be the manager of the team uh, in 2021, that there was just going to be the interim tag, and then he would come back, take over as a manager in 2021. Now, they said Sam Fole had a legitimate shot at being the manager of the Boston Red Sox in 2021. I feel like that was a red herring. That was just to save face. It was always going to be Alex Cora, in my opinion. Yeah, you interview Sam Fold and you say, okay, you know, we're not going to immediately give the guy or give the job to a guy who cheated and lost his job as a result of that. But that's, you know, what they did in the, you know, when it came down to it. But, you know, I, I think Sam Fold would have been pretty good for the team. He's an analytically driven guy. He's a very smart guy, uh, is what people have said. But, like you said, Cora was always going to come back. That was their that was their idea. Ron Reneke did not do a very good job. I mean, he he really did not lead this Boston Red Sox team like he he should have, and they they were really really bad. You know, one of the worst seasons they've had in a long time. So you know, Cora will probably make this team better next year. I would assume the Red Sox will become a lot better under Alex Cora, and they may make a few free agent signings that'll help out with that. But you know, Ron Reneke was not a good manager. Alex Cora is a good manager, but it's just the president of bringing back. A, a guy who cheated and got fired because of that just two years ago. Absolutely. And, and you wonder what this does for baseball because no players were suspended in that, in that cheating scandal. The only player that was part of that cheating scandal that had any kind of an issue was Carlos Beltran. After the fact, he became the, the Mets manager last year, and he was fired before he ever even managed a game. He was the only player that was active during the cheating scandal that was disciplined. Uh, Alex Cora gets fired. A.J. Hinch fired. Jeff Luna, who's now suing the Astros, fired. And now these guys are back in baseball. The team was only fined $5 million. They were still allowed to, uh, to uh, participate in the postseason, and they were a win away from making it back to the World Series. It just doesn't seem like it was enough for what they did, and now both managers are back in the game. Now, A.J. Hinch, he seemed incredibly remorseful. When they talked to him, he said that he wanted to just say something about it, but he was a new manager and he didn't want to lose the team and then end up not being able to manage ever again. Uh, so I understand where he's coming from. So I think he deserves um, another opportunity. Alex Cora just kind of seems in the ilk of uh, like an Alex Bregman, where it's like, yeah, we got caught, but I'm back and this is what I'm here for. And if you don't like it, I don't care. That's kind of the the vibe that I get from Alex Cora, and maybe that's what the Red Sox need, but I feel like that rubs people the wrong way in baseball. Yeah, I, I think that's because he knew he would be coming back anyway. He had he had no question as to whether he would be named the Red Sox manager again in 2021, so he never really apologized. He never felt like he had to apologize because there was no reason to. He was just going to get hired back anyway. People aren't going to be remorseful if there aren't consequences. And it, sure, a year a year suspension, okay, that's a little bit of a consequence, but it's certainly not as much as being out of baseball for the rest of your life, which is obviously not the case for Alex Cora. So. He didn't really have that much remorse, like you said, very Alex Bregman-like, and uh, that's probably just how it's going to be. All right, so now moving on, before we get um, Stan on the line here, we just want to go over some awards that were given out. 
Uh, the Cy Young Awards, they go to Shane Bieber in the American League, Trevor Bauer in the National League. Bieber was was the runaway in the American League. He was, he was a triple crown winner uh, for a pitcher in the American League. But DeGrom and Darvish had legitimate cases in the National League. Uh, quickly, how do you feel about Bauer winning the Cy Young Award? I don't mind it. He pitched really well, and he was really, really valuable to him. So I, I, I think Bauer definitely was the deserving candidate here. I mean, DeGrom was great, obviously, and Darvish was great too. But I really think Bauer was just absolutely the best pitcher in the, in the NL. Absolutely. Now, uh, moving on to the MVP, Jose Abreu in the American League. This is a guy who has been under the radar fantastic since he entered the league, uh, has 100 RBIs in five seasons since 2014. Um, had 60 RBIs. That's an RBI a game. You'll take that any day. Hit 317, 19 home runs. Clear choice. Even with LeMahieu, even with Jose Ramirez, even with Mike Trout. Uh, Mike Trout finished fifth. First time he hasn't finished in the top three, I think, in his entire career, unless you, you count that uh, injury riddled season he had. I think it was 2017 or 2018. But Mike Trout finished fifth uh, in voting in the American League. So Abreu, Abreu, the obvious choice. National League, Freddie Freeman wins it. He was more than deserving. Another under-the-radar superstar that does not get talked about enough. But Manny Machado and Mookie Betts had legitimate beefs there. Uh, Betts finished second. Machado finished third. And Fernando Tatis, I think he would have been the MVP if he hadn't had such a terrible September because he really fell off down the stretch. I'm assuming you're okay with Freddie Freeman, or did you want it to be Betts or Machado? I, I, I Personally, I wanted Machado, but I understand Freeman. I would have personally gone with Betts or Machado over Freeman, and, and the reason is is because of the defense they play. They're so valuable to their respective teams and, and you know the defensive value they can bring. And Freddie Freeman is a good first baseman, but he doesn't have the kind of center field prowess or third base prowess that those two guys bring. Rookie of the year, Kyle Lewis in the American League. He started out hot, stayed hot. Um, 262 batting average 364 on base percentage he wins it Luis Robert was a solid choice um that's that dude's gonna be a superstar but he batted 233 and he had his own base percentage was 304 so he didn't walk a ton um good power hit 11 home runs this year but Kyle Lewis was the runaway there um Ryan Mountcastle I think he got one eighth place vote or one third place vote or something like that so he, he finished in eighth place but he's eligible to win it in 2021 I think he'll make a strong case Devin Williams Wins in the National League. He's a relief pitcher, not a closer. 4-1 four four, four record, a .33 ERA, a .63 whip, but zero saves. We were talking about this a little bit before the show. A reliever with zero saves as a rookie of the year? Yeah, super dominant and very, very valuable to his team, of course. But I think there are guys that have more value than a relief pitcher, especially not even being a closer. Just a relief pitcher. He pitched awesome. I mean, he was fantastic. But there are guys that I do think were more deserving. Obviously, Alec Bohm was one of the guys. But there were there were probably other guys that you could have gone with here. And, and Devin Williams... I just don't, it doesn't sit right with me to give the rookie of the year to a guy who is a relief pitcher. I'm just not a huge fan of that. Even Alec Bohm, I think, is more deserving. Yeah, I, I can see that. Alec Bohm hit like 338. Uh, not a lot of power, four home runs uh, in a pretty pretty significant sample size for a 60 game season, not, for, not as a whole. But um, certainly he could have been deserving. Now, look, if. Devin Williams, if that's his numbers for a 162-game season, we're not just talking Rookie of the Year, we're talking Cy Young. So that would have been the best relief season in the history of the game, and that includes Zach Britton's .54 ERA and 47 for 47 saves in 2016. So uh, I think he's deserving. I'm not sure I would have given it to a reliever either, 
But these guys play the game, too. So, you know, congratulations to him. Uh, rest of the show, we have Stan the Fan coming up in a matter of moments. Jonathan Mayo covers the draft and minor leagues for MLB.com and MLBPipeline.com. He'll be on at 10.50. We have Sean McAdam, who covers the Red Sox for the Boston Sports Journal at 11.35. Plus, we have Orioles banter around 11.20. Little Ravens talk to close the show. Today, we're going to talk about on Orioles banter uh, the future of shortstop. Uh, for the Baltimore Orioles, who it's going to be. We're going to go over a number of players. But before that, Zach, you're going to sound off. Tony La Russa was pulled over for a DUI in February. White Sox and Jerry Reinsdorf, they knew about it, hired him anyway. It's a second DUI. Go ahead and sound off for me a little bit while I get stand on the line. Yeah, so I sounded off about Tony La Russa and the White Sox situation just a few weeks ago now, and I, I talked about why I didn't think it was a good hire. I didn't think hiring a guy who's very old school, who doesn't bring a lot of analytical knowledge to the table, I didn't think that was good for a young ball club like the White Sox and an analytically driven ball club like the White Sox. And then to make things worse, we hear this week about La Russa having his second DUI. He's going to go to court for it soon. And to make everything even worse, the White Sox knew about it all, and they did nothing. They just hired him, you know, with with even knowing that this guy is driving drunk around or, or wherever influence he was under. And they had no problem with that. And that just rubs me the wrong way, personally. Tony La Russa quoted, I have nothing to say. So he, you know, he obviously wants to just completely put it to bed, but that's not going to happen. This is a bad hire in the first place. It's his second DUI in any other job in America, a person would be fired or they wouldn't be hired if they you know, were, were found to have a DUI. DUI is a serious offense, and the White Sox aren't handle, handling it like that. And to make a bad hire worse, this is all going down, and I'm not sure this is going to end well for either side. Well, I'm certainly no one to judge somebody for getting a DUI. I know people who have gotten DUIs, people I care about, people I love, people I know very personally, um, and it's it happens. It's one of those things that happens. This day and age, it's just it's becoming less and less prevalent because it shouldn't happen. There are so many ways for you to not have to get behind the wheel of a car. And if you have the money that Tony La Russa has, there is no excuse for to to get a DUI, to get the second DUI, and for him to say to the to the police officer, "Do you know who I am? I'm a Hall of Fame baseball person. You're trying to embarrass me." It's it makes a bet what people deem to be a bad hire look that much worse. With that in mind, we have Stan the Fan Charles on the line right now. And Stan, I really want to get your take on the La Russa DUI and what it says for the White Sox and what it says for him as the manager going forward. Well, I uh, I agree with uh, Zach completely. I thought I thought it was a bad hire a week ago before we knew this, and uh, now I'm convinced it's a, just an absolutely terrible hire. It uh, sends a really inappropriate message uh, that Major League Baseball will somehow countenance uh, people that act like this. And look, I don't get that crazy with the whole "Do you know who I am?" Because part of driving drunk is you're you're not in control of your senses and you're not really in control of what you say. You sound like a, a an absolute idiot, you know. And that's what dr- drinking and driving will do. Look, I'm 68 years old. Am I going to tell you that before this became a big deal that I never got behind the the wheel of a car driving drunk? Absolutely not. I did 40, 45 years ago. But that doesn't mean that I think it's right today for for this hire. This is just an absolutely terrible hire. And it's, it's interesting 
the, the Miami Marlins yesterday, I know it's a topic we're going to talk about. Their hiring of Kim Ang, you know, become the first woman uh, general manager in the history of baseball. Um, you know, this is a woman who at the age of 29 was already an assistant general manager to Brian Cashman, and she had to wait patiently and uh, for 30-some years, uh, thir- well, uh, 22 years, to go from assistant general manager to general manager. And the, the two things held up against each other uh, speak loudly to one that is an appropriate hire, long overdue, and the other one, which is just a bad idea. Stan, so titles are different in every organization. Obviously, a GM can mean very different things, and whether it's the Orioles or the Yankees or the Marlins, wherever it is, because sometimes it's the president has the power, and sometimes it's the GM. So what kind of power do you think they'll delegate to Kimming as under being under Derek Jeter? Uh, I think Kim, I, look, one of the key po- parts of this is they know each other pretty darn well. There's no way that she she wasn't the assistant GM under Brian Cashman and doesn't have a very strong relationship with Derek Jeter. I think she'll have, um, you know, I think she will have a lot of say uh, there in in, uh, in running that ball club. Yeah, and, and she certainly should. Like like you said, she's been she's been in line for one of these positions for. 22 years so this is this is something that is long overdue now moving on to the Orioles side of things here a little bit Stan uh, they yeah. they named Chris Holt their pitching coach now there was a lot of rigmarole made about the Orioles letting go Brocale Doug Brocale and Jose Flores because of finances but let's not be mistaken here if they don't make Chris Holt their pitching coach, chances are he's leaving the organization. And I think that has much to do with uh, the, the relieving Brocale of his duties as anything else. What are your thoughts on uh, Chris Holt taking over? Yeah, I think, I think you hit the nail on the head, um, you know, and there were some erroneous reports a couple weeks ago that Major League Baseball was going to be investigating uh, Mike Elias for, for putting uh, – Chris Holt on the pension plan last year when mm-hmm. it was inappropriate that he wasn't in a major league uniform technically. Um, there's no question uh, that the Orioles uh, really like Chris Holt. They like what he brings to the table, and uh, he's certainly much more analytically driven than Doug Brocal. So this is a guy who speaks their language. When I say their language, I'm talking about the language of Mike Elias and Sig Madoff. Uh, and this is who they want to be kind of the, the main guy at not only working on developing pitchers, but working on teaching the methodology that they want throughout the whole minor league system. And I think that's pretty important that he has the same, he has the job that I think the, the pitching coach in an organization really should have, which is it should be seamless that the pitching coach is teaching one level and one method of teaching how you want to approach analytics and spin rate and all those newfangled terms, uh, and you don't hear different languages at different levels. So I think it's very important. I can tell you firsthand that you remember about four Five, six years ago, the Orioles' roving pitching coach, minor league pitching coach, was Rick Peterson. Yes. You remember that name? I do, I do. Yeah. 
Rick Peterson told me that, you know, Dan Duquette hired him, and Buck Showalter essentially treated, looked at him like he had four heads. You know, uh, that's a terrible system to have when you have the major league pitching coach teaching one thing and the guy in the minor leagues teaching another thing. And then when you, when you look at the lack of overall success that a Kevin Gosman had and a Dylan Bundy had, and those were, and Hunter Harvey, that I know injuries played a part in Bundy's and Harvey's slow development, but it's, it can't be a good thing to be teaching people contrary, you know, using contrary uh, terminology, contra- contrary methodology, uh, you know, so this is, this is, to my way of thinking, the right way to have an organizational pitching coach set up with all the other people that will be below him. Well, it's, it certainly makes sense that you would want to have the same, um, the same methodology taught from top to bottom throughout the organization. And now, Stan, a big part of good pitching is good defense. And with that in mind, the Orioles picked up the option on Jose Iglesias. They signed Yomar Sanchez um, to play second base. So you're looking at potentially, now look, nothing's guaranteed for Sanchez here, but you know that Iglesias, if healthy, is going to be out there at shortstop 140 to 160 times, uh, assuming a full season in 2021. Whether that happens remains to be seen, but that's a topic for another day. Um, Now with Yomar Sanchez in the fold, the 2019 Gold Glove winner at second base, is he now your everyday second baseman? And if so, what does this mean for Hanser Alberto? Because I think he's played his last game as an Oriole. Yeah, I, I think that the, the two guys that, to me, look like they're going to be X'd out of being Orioles are Hanser Alberto and Renato Nunez. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and again... A little portion of this has to do with um, the uncertainty on the uh, how many games they will play, and I don't know if you want to get into that topic today or not. But I, I think with the pandemic raging uh, and more fiery than it's been since it uh, got introduced here in the United States in February last year, it's raging at a much higher rate and volatility. I don't think there's any way that they're going to play a 162-game schedule next year. So that's going to impact the Orioles' decision again for a second year on Chris Davis. Um, the Orioles, if in other words, if the Orioles were to play 162 games next year, Chris Davis is scheduled to make $21 million. I think that's the figure. Right. If they play 60 games again, Chris Davis, or let's say 80 games, you know, make it a half. They save themselves $11 million because his $21 million is guaranteed unless the games aren't played. Uh, so they, they're sitting on the sideline uh, with Chris Davis. Also, you'll, you'll again have probably a roster that will allow for extra people on it, which makes it easier to carry Chris Davis. So if Chris Davis weren't here, and things were going back to normal, I think Renato Nunez would probably make the team, but I, I don't see how Renato fits in next season with the ball club. Oh, he certainly, in my opinion, and I've, I've said this even since the season was being played, that he's the guy who slides right out. With Mancini coming back, with Mountcastle in the fold, you have, 
you have and all these outfielders that are coming up. You're going to have Hayes and Santander and Mountcastle and Mancini, and then you could potentially see Ryan McKenna, uh, Cedric Mullins, Yasniel Diaz, and DJ Stewart, and, yep. and DJ Stewart. Where does Renato Nunez fit? He's the guy who slides right out. Very streaky hitter. He can carry your ball club for a week, and then he goes ice cold for a month. Um, we saw that to extremes in the 60-game season. Led the team in home runs, but he went a month between home runs at one point. So yeah. Nunez is the guy that slides out. Rio Ruiz. Also, not to, not to be underestimated <laughs> there, we're hearing all great things about Trey's condition. Yeah. But when, when the rubber meets the road next summer and you get uh, a week or 10 days of 95 <laughs> degrees and you're in Texas or Houston, even though those games are played inside a uh, facility, the wear and tear of the summer, um, it's not unthinkable that Trey Mancini could play half of whatever amount of games he plays at DH and the other half at first base. Uh, to me, he no longer really factors uh, as an outfielder at all. Yeah, no, I agree. And Zach and I actually talked about that in the intro to the show today, that they're going to they're gonna kind of slow play, Trey, I would imagine, as far as him playing on both sides of, of the baseball um, in 2021. I, I think that maybe towards the second half of the season, you might see him play more regularly in the field, but I think he's going to get a lot of time at DH just to kind of get his feet under him. And you seem to agree. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Now, speaking of Renato Nunez, Another thing that could push him off the roster, now he, he has stone hands uh, in the infield, but can't play first base. Uh, he's, Rio Ruiz is going to be the guy right now at third base, and he's going to make close to the, to the league minimum because he's still pre-arbitration eligible. The Orioles don't really have anybody that's going to push Rio Ruiz. Ryland Bannon, but he's never played in a major league inning, so you, you don't know what he brings to the table. And Stan, we talked about this a little bit last night. There's a guy... Uh, who had 25 home runs in 2017, 24 home runs in, in 2018, was just released by the Milwaukee Brewers last week or last month, and that's Ryan Healy. Now, not a great defender at third base, but he's only due about a million dollars in arbitration. This seems like the perfect type of player that the Orioles could bring in to kind of push Ruiz in spring training, uh, not to be the, the everyday third baseman, but somebody who could kind of light a fire under Ruiz to get his game to the next level. Well, you, you bring up an, an interesting name there. It, it just sort of goes against the grain of what they would be, what they'd be bringing in with Sanchez is the improved defense. Right. And he makes less money than Hanser Alberto. So it, it, you, you, you plugged in a guy that, that certainly isn't going to break the limited funds that the Orioles have. Uh, the question is, can he play enough third base? It's been a couple of years since I've seen him play third. You know, he got moved out in Oakland. Uh, Billy Bean and David Forst moved him out to Seattle to pick up Emilio Pagan, I believe it was, mm-hmm. um, in that trade. And then they de- ended up dealing Pagan somewhere else. But Healy went to Seattle from Oakland when Chapman ar- really arrived and became the everyday third baseman in Oakland. Um, he's not a guy I'd want playing an awful lot, but I, I get, I catch your drift. And if you, if you're old enough, like I am to remember sort of Gary Renicky and John Lowenstein and the platoon, you could definitely get, you know, in a, 
in a 162-game season, you could probably get 35 home runs out of Ruiz and Healy for not a lot of money. But again, it does sort of go against the grain of the, the defensive acquisition that Sanchez appears to be. The one name I think you're leaving out that I think will get an honest look, and Bannon is probably a little higher on the Orioles' food chain right now, but is this Terran Vavra that they picked up from the Rockies. Uh, I'd love to see him uh, and what they really think about him for the 2021 season. Stan, what do you think about Adani Echevarria? Because he's a guy who's been kind of linked to the Orioles for quite a few times now, as far back as when the Orioles were getting rid of J.J. Hardy back in 2016. But a, a glove-first guy who can play all around the infield had a one-year deal with the Braves this year, and definitely not a guy who handles the bat very well. But he's kind of yeah. like a Yomer Sanchez, but a little bit older. He can really, really, really pick it at short, at third, at second. What do you think about bringing in a guy like him? He's got veteran experience. He's played in the playoffs a lot, just a guy who really could bring a lot to this ball club. It's an, it's an interesting name, it, it, but I, I have to believe if, if Iglesias hadn't been, you know, the option hadn't been picked up on Iglesias, I think that would have been a perfect guy for a year. But I, I don't think he brings enough to the table. Look, he brings more to the, the offensive side of the table than Andrew Velasquez did. Yeah. But I think it's a little bit like making that kind of uh, pickup. You know, uh, I'm not equating them 100%, but i got to get more offense out of those other positions. And I think Sanchez gives you a little chance of getting something offensively at second base uh, that's not that distant from Hanser Alberto. Well, yes, Sanchez, I think he led the White Sox in triples a, a year or two ago. He had 10 triples. I think it was in the 2019 season. So he, he brings a little bit of something uh, yeah. to, to the offensive side of, of the game. But, yeah, I, I definitely think that a guy like Ryan Healy, he could push Ruiz, but he goes against the grain as far as being defensive-minded. But anything's better than putting Renato Nunez out of third base you know, for half the season. Now, a couple other guys that the Orioles have in their system now is A.J. Graffinito and Greg Cullen, who came over as the players to be named later in the Tommy Malone trade with the Braves. Both have solid bats, although Graffinito has very little power. They have good defensive gloves at shortstop and second base. Are they going to get a look, or are they too young uh, in their careers right now? Uh, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Uh, you know, <laughs> the way that Tommy Malone pitched for uh, Atlanta, uh, I'm surprised that that trade didn't translate into, you know, hey, we'll give you a bag of balls and a couple bats. Right. Um, I, I don't look at either of these two guys we picked up in that deal as being uh, really, pri- you know, primary prospects at all. Yeah, I, I, they want to, I, I believe that A.J. Graffinino is a top 30 prospect. I think Greg Cullen might be, too, as for for the Braves. Now, where they go with the Orioles, that remains to be seen. Um, I did like that you mentioned Taron Vavra um, as a potential guy who could get a look in 2021. The problem they're saying is he has never played a professional game at third base, more of a second baseman and a shortstop uh, than anything else. Uh, does he have the arm to play third base uh, I haven't heard that much about him as far as that position is concerned. I haven't heard that much about it either, but it sounded like from what I gathered that he played all all three infield positions, you know. 
Okay. But if he if he hasn't, then maybe maybe they think Sanchez. Look, I'm not predicting flat out today that Taron Vavra's got a very good chance to make. I've never seen the guy play, uh, but I think that he he was picked up for a reason, and it's to give this organization more depth in the infield and to give themselves more options. And I certainly see that they will go in with an open mind to see what he brings. I mean, he could be, for all we know, he could be a little bit of an advanced Pat Vileka. Uh, You know, he may play a little bit better than Vileka does all over the field. Yeah, I, I want to circle back to A.J. Graffanino for a minute because it is interesting, yeah. his career timeline, because he hasn't really played a full game in two years. He's been, uh, you know, injuries, and he's he's – an eighth-round pick, not a very highly touted guy, but he does have mm-hmm. the glove, and he maybe fits into a utility role down the road, but he's only played seven games in two years, so oh, wow. he hasn't really done much, and you know, it's it's kind of a fresh start for him, a place where he can kind of go to and, and maybe be something, but I, I think that getting a 23-year-old guy in single a ball is a bit concerning you know he hasn't made it out of there yet and he hasn't played a lot so maybe just kind of a lottery ticket for mike elias hoping he can get maybe a utility type out of him if you if you read uh massinsports.com yesterday rock Kabatko had a really interesting column you know, his dad pitched in the big leagues and uh was with the milwaukee brewer organization when jj hardy was there and jj hardy has worked with this kid uh, there's no question he has a big league glove, uh, but um, you know, if asked right now what we got, I can't tell you exactly what we got. I know his bat isn't much, and I know I read the same thing that he hasn't played much over the last two years. So, I mean, to me, he'd be a guy if if we knew that the minor leagues were set up. Sounds like he'd be a guy that could start at Bowie. Uh, and give the club really solid defense there. And again, um, that's not a bad thing to to add to the organization when you're going to have some of your better pitchers going through, and you don't want them throwing unnecessarily behind bad defense. Well, yeah, and you know what, though, Stan? Anything to kind of revamp uh, the prospects in the middle infield for the Orioles because we all know that their best middle infield prospects are in the lower levels. So they get some guys at double-A and triple-A that can pick it at shortstop and second base and they can handle their own with the bat. It's certainly something that helps the, the franchise moving forward. Now, before we let you go, Stan, the last thing I want to ask yep. you about, A.J. Hinch and Alex Cora back managing in baseball. Hinch with the Tigers, Cora back with the Red Sox, which we all knew was going to happen. Um, is this something that is good or bad for baseball. I lean towards it's bad for baseball, considering there wasn't. It doesn't seem like there was much discipline for that whole cheating scandal. When you really look at things, well, I think in the case of AJ Hinch, I think AJ has has said and done all the right things. I agree. Since that point in time, and the picture is painted of a guy who at least had some inner turmoil over the cheating scandal that he knew knew about. Um, the fact that, it, that he didn't design it or develop it uh, doesn't absolve him of any guilt, but I think he's paid a, a significant price, uh, and I have no problem with him coming back. Uh, Cora, 
is a little bit of a different ball game. I'm sure that he's been chastened by this and embarrassed by this. Um, I don't have a big overall. I don't have a major problem with them coming back. It seems though that Jeff Lunau is making a stand, and I don't think Jeff Lunau will ever work in baseball again. Now that he's suing Major League Baseball to, uh, uh, he's suing I think Major League Baseball and the Astros for a wrongful termination yeah. to get the twenty-two million dollars that he's owed. Uh, and we'll see. He might, he may very well get that, but I'll tell you what. The picture that he's painting of himself, that he knew absolutely nothing about this, and to, to, to sit at home games and hear these trash cans being banged, and, and, and guys that sharp to watch the way that a Bregman or an Altuve would jump on certain pitches, I, I think he paints himself as almost a useful idiot rather than somebody that didn't know anything. Um, you know, he had to have known. How could there, you there's, sit there's no way at 81 know. Astro home games in 2017 and 18 when this was going on and claim, I know not, you know, you know, like uh, the, the character from Hogan's Heroes, uh, uh, you know, saying, I know nothing, I see nothing. Uh, you sound like an absolute idiot, and Jeff Lunau is far from an idiot. Yeah, it, it it doesn't make a lot of sense. You you would if you're the general manager of a ball club and you're sitting there at all those home games. There's no way he didn't know. He just wants his money, Stan. That's what it all comes down to. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised well, he if wants he doesn't. His money, get... but he's trying to get his money and his reputation back. And I'm I I frankly think he's going to get it. He I think he probably, there's a good chance he may be able to prove in a court of law that they don't know for a fact that he knew this was going on. But winning that case, uh, I think it's, just, it's not a great message for him. And this is a guy who was a big earner in the world of hedge funds and you know finance before he turned his attention to baseball. You know, he used some of the same analytical approach in working for one of the really big investment companies. I forget the name of it now, but it's uh, universally accepted as one of the top firms in the country and in the world for that matter well yeah playing playing dumb with all this it certainly isn't the way to go i think you're more so going to save your reputation reputation going the aj hinch route rather than the jeff lunell route but sam we got to get a break thanks so much for joining the show for your always a pleasure guys thank you so much we'll talk soon bye-bye and as always on the bat around that was Stan the fan Charles you can catch him for our weekly segment every week at 10:20 and if you're missing your Stan the fan fix you can get it twice a week on Facebook live at facebook.com/pressboxsports every Monday night Stan and former Orioles pitcher Ross Grimsley talk baseball and every Wednesday night Stan and Gary Stein talk to a newsmaker in the sports world this week Stan and Ross caught up with Towson alum Andy Freed, the play-by-play voice of the Tampa Bay Rays, while Stan and Gary chatted with Jeff Zrebeck, who covers the Ravens for The Athletic. Find both shows via the videos tab at facebook.com slash pressboxsports or at pressboxonline.com. Coming up Monday night, a neat show as Stan and Ross are joined at 8 p.m. by Rob Nelson, the founder of Big League Chew. we got to get a break here 
folks, but when we come back, we're going to be talking to Jonathan Mayo of MLB.com and MLBPipeline.com about some Orioles' top 10 prospects. And we'll be doing that from the Chesapeake Employers Insurance Studio. And I just want to remind you that the Batter Round is brought to you by Chesapeake Employers Insurance, your workers' compensation insurance specialist. Stay tuned for Jeff Mayo after the break. Looking for an easy family meal? Glory Days Grill offers patio dining along with to-go and online ordering. They're open from 11 a.m. to 9 p.m. every day. Visit glorydaysgrill.com for a location near you. Glory Days Grill is here to serve you and thank you for your support as you stay local and stay positive. Hashtag GDG at home. Hashtag Glory Days Strong. For more than 40 years, K&S Automotive has been repairing, restoring, and maintaining foreign and domestic vehicles with a focus on exceptional workmanship and customer service. Everything from oil changes to major body work. Call K&S now at 410-235-6600 or go to knsimports.com. That's K&S at knsimports.com. Receive a free Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich offer card as a thank you when you donate to Toys for Tots on Saturday, November 21st at any of the 12 Baltimore area Chick-fil-A Stuff the Truck event sites. Be one of the first 50 people to donate and you also get a free t-shirt. For location list and more information, visit PressBoxOnline.com slash Toy Drive. That's PressBoxOnline.com slash Toy Drive. Masks and social distancing required. Help us stuff the truck November 21st with the Baltimore area Chick-fil-A restaurants. Hey, Dad, can we try one of those hoagie things? <sighs> Sorry, son. We aren't hoagie people. What do you mean? Son, we're Royal Farms sub people, like my daddy was and his daddy before him, like you and me and all the folks we know. Gee, Dad, I never thought about it like that. So you're saying hoagie people are... Aliens, son. They're aliens. Royal Farm subs are Baltimore's best. Real fresh, real fast. Royal Farms. If it's happening in Baltimore sports and beyond, it's happening on Glenn Clark Radio. New Ravens linebacker Patrick Queen. Appreciate y'all. Trey Mancini. Thanks for having me on, guys. Glad to be back on. Ravens linebacker Matt Judon. Appreciate y'all. How y'all doing? Ravens kicker Justin Tucker. Thanks for having me. Adley Rutschman. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Coach Mark Turgeon. How you guys doing? Heston Kerstad. Thanks for having me. Joe Burrow. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Marlon Humphrey. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Coach Mike Loxley. Thanks for having me on. He is J.K. Dobbins. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I had a great time. The great Ray Lewis. Always good to be home. Dicky V, Dick Vitale. Kyle, too diaper dandy. What's up, fellas? Hey, what's going on, Ed? Glenn and Kyle are live Monday through Friday, 10 a.m. to noon, and archived anytime. Watch Facebook.com slash PressBox Sports and listen to PressBoxOnline.com slash radio. Glenn Clark Radio and Drew Forrester's DrewsMorningDish.com have partnered up to collect coats and clothes this holiday season for Helping Up Mission. There's never been a more difficult time to take care of those who need it most in our community. Thankfully, Grade 8's memorabilia and Jerry's Toyota and Chevrolet have partnered with us for an awesome collection drive event. We'll be at Looney's Perry Hall Monday, December 14th from 6.30 to 8.30 for a pregame tailgate party before the Baltimore-Cleveland showdown. Joining us will be Ring of Honor star Michael McCrary, who will be taking socially distanced pictures and signing autographs for anyone who donates coats and clothes. That's Looney's Perry Hall Monday, December 14th for our pregame party and collection drive with Michael McCrary with your thoughtful donations to the Helping Up Mission. 
The latest edition of PressBox is available now. On the cover, we celebrate the 20th anniversary of the Ravens Super Bowl 35 championship run with Ray Lewis, Brian Billick, Trent Dilfer, Jonathan Ogden, and more helping to explain how the magical season happened. Also inside, Todd Karpovich profiles Ryan Mountcastle and the role he can play as a cornerstone for the Orioles' rebuild. PressBox is available for free at over 500 area locations, including 60 Royal Farm stores. Also, you can always find the entire edition, as well as the best daily coverage of the Orioles, Ravens, and Terps at PressBoxOnline.com. All right, welcome back to the Batter Round. I'm your host, Paul Valley. With me, as always, is my co-host, Zach Goodman, and we're coming to you from the Chesapeake Employers Insurance Studio. On the line with us right now from MLB.com and MLBPipeline.com is the one and the only Jonathan Mayo. Jonathan, how are you today, man? I'm glad there's only one of me. The world can take more of that. Jeez. <laughs> well, we certainly appreciate having the one and only on our show today. <laughs> um, so before we get into talking a little bit about the Orioles prospects here, uh, I just want to get your take on the hiring of Kim Ng as the first woman, G- f- first female GM in the in male American professional sports as she becomes the general manager of the Miami Marlins. Um, yeah, I'm glad you're giving me the opportunity to, to talk about that. Uh, I- I could not be more thrilled. Uh, it's a long time in coming. Uh, you know, I, I think baseball still has a very, very long way to go to be more inclusive in its hiring practices. But this is a fantastic step in, in the right direction. Um, you know, I think in, in some ways baseball has been behind uh, in some of these practices. But to see them uh, be the, the fir- to see it be the first sport to break through that glass ceiling is very exciting. And Kim is. Uh, is so well-deserving and so incredibly qualified. Uh, you know, I, I think one thing Major League Baseball have to, you know, look, sit back and look at is the fact that had Kim been male, she would have been hired years ago as a general manager. Yeah. And, and you know, and but, I, you know, I don't want to rain on, on, on the celebration uh, of what this means. Uh, I think it is fantastic. I give a ton of credit to... Derek Jeter and the Miami Marlins for for taking this step, uh, and uh, you know I look forward to Kim continuing to open doors and pave the way for for other women in the sport as she's been doing for the you know for the past thirty years. Well, it, it certainly is an exciting thing to happen for Major League Baseball and for women in professional sports as a whole. So I think we can all say it's well deserved, long overdue. Congratulations to Kim Ng to the Miami Marlins and Major League Baseball as a whole for finally getting something like this done. Now, Jonathan, moving on here, you wrote an article, basically the state of the Orioles farm system for MLB.com the other day. Uh, And in the article, it says that the the Orioles went from unranked prior to 2019 to eighth in farm system rankings in basically the matter of a year and a half. For you, what does this say about the job Mike Elias is doing with this rebuild and are teams in Major League Baseball starting to take notice of the Baltimore Orioles? I think without question. I think the only caveat I want to to bring in is that we only did top 10 systems up through the 2019 preseason. Okay. And then top 15 in that midseason 2019 ranking, um, which is when the first time they jumped on it now. Without having looked back at those years, those previous years, the Orioles would not have been ranked very highly. Uh, but you know, just to, to to give listeners a, a little bit of perspective that it's you know it doesn't sound quite as you know it's not as huge a leap as, as it may may be. Uh, but that said, yes, they are uh, 
moving up quickly. They're in the top 10 now. Listen, you know, when you are in a rebuild and you're picking high in the draft uh, and, you know, and presumably you're making the, the correct selections in the draft, uh, then you're gonna, your system is going to move in, in the right direction. And I think there's been a combination of you know, guys who were in the system already coming up uh, and, and, and performing well to, to provide some hope. Guys like Ryan Mountcastle and even Dean Kramer you know, was the, the first from the Manny Machado trade to, to pay any kind of big league dividends. And then the rest, you know, uh, as people will say all the time, and if you were to talk to Mike Elias, like, it's great having a highly ranked farm system but it doesn't mean anything if they don't come up and perform at the big league level. Uh, but there's a lot, there's a lot of exciting talent. It's a lot deeper than it used to be. Um, you know, Joe Trezza does the, the heavy lifting on putting the, the Orioles top 30 together, but I, I oversee it. And, you know, this is the kind of system that sometimes it was hard to find 30 guys. And now, you know, we're close to the point where you're leaving guys off or there are guys at the very back end who are really interesting. And that, as much as the elite level talent at the top, uh, and there is, uh, the, the depth of the system, I think, is what speaks volumes about the direction the organization's heading. Hey, Jonathan, Zach Goodman. Uh, and you did a top 30 breakdown as far as the draft, international, and trade guys go. So there were 20 from the draft, uh, two from the international markets, and eight from trade. So do you expect that international number to grow? Is there any guys that are just on the outside of that top 30 or guys the Orioles could be signing very soon that would grow that international number? Yeah, I, there's no question that um, there are going to be guys uh, who um, who you're going to want to keep an eye on uh, because you know, there, were, there were a lot of years, and you guys know, that uh, the Orioles' presence in Latin America – prior to, to this regime was virtually non-existent. Uh, so there wasn't, you know, there wasn't much there. Um, I think that, uh, you know, wh- where you're going to see it is the, in this, the, this last signing class. And then, as you said, moving, moving forward, um, there are a couple of guys, I think, uh, to, to keep an eye on um, uh, who have been signed since sort of 2018 forward. Um, all in the outfield. There's some really exciting outfielders. Steven Acevedo, Isaac Bellany, and Luis Gonzalez are all three guys that I think, uh, you know, they may end up in the top 30 when we re-rank him for 2021. Um, you know, one of the difficult things in our world has been because there's been no baseball, uh, you know, we haven't heard much about those guys. They, all three of them performed well uh, at Instructs. It was the first time in, in the United States um, but there, we don't have much to go on. So, you know, uh, you know, as, as Joe uh, Trezza starts digging into that, I'll, I'm very curious to see. I think some of those guys will probably make their way on. If not right away, because, again, they haven't really played yet, then at, at some point in 2021, assuming there's some semblance of, of a baseball season, whether it's in the Dominican Summer League or uh, in, the, in the Gulf Coast League for, for those you know, really young, low-level guys. Well, somebody that we certainly expect to perform at a high level, number two overall on the top 100 list, the Orioles' number one prospect and first overall pick in the 2019 draft, Adley Rutschman. Hasn't played a full minor league season yet. Orioles typically want their prospects to spend a good bit of time with each affiliate, in a lot of cases, a full year at each affiliate. However, you chose Rutschman as your impact prospect for the 2021 season for the Major League Club. 
What led you to choosing him, and when do you think we'll see Rutschman at the major league level? I'm sorry, I've never heard of Adley Rutschman. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, it's funny, there are times where uh, you know, we, we done, did a series of, of stories over the, over the course of the summer and you know, guys impacting alternate site and then guys at interest where I, I, I finally uh, said to, uh, to Matt Blood, the Orioles farm director, I was like, all right, we just, you know, just to mix it up, I need to talk about someone other than Adley Rushman because he's, he's always the best player on the field. Um, I, I just don't think that you know, whatever normal formula the Orioles have, uh, in terms of, and I understand the need to have guys play level to level and things like that. And then this year was a year without any like real reps. Um, although I think there's you know some value from from him being around the older guys at an alternate site. Um, but he was the best player there anyway. Uh, you're gonna have to throw out the playbook for him. You know, I, I think that this is a guy that could very easily start the year in Double A um, and move very very quickly from there. He is so advanced in all aspects of the game. That I don't think he's going to need much time. So uh, you know, I know there's you know service clock considerations and just getting him some reps. You know, you don't. I'm not saying put him in the big leagues on opening day, although I think he would hold his own. Um, but I think by midseason, he's going to be knocking very loudly on the door. Now, if the Orioles decide, listen, we're not we're not really competing yet. We're moving in the right direction, and they it just makes more sense to let him get a full season. And in the minors, I think that's perfectly uh, responsible, you know, and, and, and makes some sense. I just think that he is so good and so advanced, and he's going to help them win games. Uh, so, you know, I assume uh, and expect that the Orioles are going to take a nice step forward in some capacity in terms of how they perform at the big league level, and he's just going to help them win more games, um, uh, you know, once, once he gets to the big leagues from day one. Yeah, he seems like that impact player who could come up to the major league level and, and help out now, especially with the state of the Orioles um, catching depth, at, at least at the major league level. They aren't great defensively with Pedro Severino and Chance Sisko, and both of their bats cooled off considerably the last month of the season. So Adley Rutschman is somebody that everybody in Baltimore is super excited about, and to hear you say that we could see him midseason is something that I think that we'll all get pretty fired up about here in Baltimore. Now, another guy who was taken right after... Adley Rutschman uh, for the Orioles is Gunnar Henderson. Basically in the same boat as, as Rutschman as far as pro experience and being a high draft pick with a high ceiling. Jonathan, what have you heard or seen uh, from Gunnar Henderson? And can, when can Baltimore fans realistically expect to see him? You have him as your impact player for 2022. Well, I have him as the number one prospect in 2022. That doesn't mean that he's going to impact the big leagues in 2022. Just, gotcha. to, just to be clear, I don't want people to get too excited. Although... He is the kind of player that I think, had there been a regular season, and when we do, you know, we do a, a re-rank of all of our lists, you know, at, at some point in the summer this year, we didn't really change the order. We just inserted the 2020 draft guys. Um, but I think had we done that, Gunnar Henderson would be on the top 100 based on everything that I've heard, and everything that I've heard is that he was unbelievable all summer. Instructs. Um, just a, a very, very, very impressive athlete who can really play shortstop. Um, you know, even though he's big, he's just super athletic. Uh, he can hit. The power is coming. Uh, it was showing up, uh, you know, like I said, all summer. Uh, you know, there have been comps to Corey Seager. Uh, so, worst-case scenario, he has to move to third. But 
the reports I got is that he showed no reason to move him anytime soon. Um, so that may just be a necessity or where there's, where there's, you know, opportunity for him to play. So I, I think there's this interesting thing that I want to dive into guys that, you know, not necessarily for, for a guy like him, cause he was ready to hit full season ball, but for these younger guys, I think there was some benefit of being around the older players that may, it, it doesn't make up for a lack of 500 at bats, say in the South Atlantic league, but, there may be some really good takeaways where he can start moving quickly, where maybe he is ready by the second half of 2022. I don't know. But I think that he is a guy who is going to definitely climb into the top 100 very soon. It's hard because, you know, we rely on talking to pro scouts from around baseball, and, you know, nobody has seen him really uh, outside of people within the Orioles organization. But every single person within the Orioles organization can't stop talking about how impressive Gunnar Henderson was this very bizarre year. Yeah, there's another guy, Jonathan, that I feel is kind of knocking on the door of the top 100. I want to get your opinion on that, and that's Michael Bauman. Obviously, Michael Bauman has been very, very good the past few years for the Orioles, and he was apparently very good down at the Bowie camp again. He's the Orioles' number nine ranked prospect right now, but how close would he be to getting in that top 100 if he was to have a really, really good 2021 minor league season? I think um, I've always liked Michael Bauman, you know, ever really since the draft. And we, Jim Callis and I split up the draft, you know, in the country, and I do Florida. So, you know, I really liked him. I liked his, his size, uh, and I liked his stuff. Uh, and he has been, he's been very good. You know, I think that his age sort of works against him a little bit, perhaps unfairly. Um, you know, I think he, he, and it's fine if he doesn't end up in, in the, in the top 100, you, you know, you have some guys in that neck of the, of the top three in his, in both he and, and Dean Kramer, um, who may not quite crack the top 100 before they graduate off of lists, um, which, you know, which very well could happen again, because we don't have a year of, if there had been a full year, maybe Michael Bauman pitched his, would have pitched his way to, to Baltimore and have graduated anyway, right? He, he is advanced. Um, you know, his, you know, his ceiling is not huge, which is probably the other thing that's limited him. Um, you know, and I think it still even remains to be seen. I think he's probably like a number three or four starter, and the, but if not that fastball-slider combo would be really, really good in the bullpen. Um, you know, so it's, I think we have to see what his um, his ultimate role is. Some of it has to do with his breaking stuff and his overall command of, of all the stuff. But he's got the potential to have four pitches. He's got the perfect pitcher's frame. I mean, I like him a lot. Um, you know, even if he never cracks the top 100, that doesn't mean he's not going to be a, a very valuable member uh, of the Orioles' big league pitching staff. At some point in 2021, um, that's going to happen. Well, some other pitchers that the Orioles and their fans are kind of putting a lot of eggs in that basket are Grayson Rodriguez and D.L. Hall. Rodriguez in 2019 was one of the top 10 righty prospects in all of the minors. D.L. Hall, a top 10 lefty in all of the minors. What is their ceiling, Jonathan? Do we have a potential two-headed monster at the top of the Orioles' rotation in a few years? Yep. I mean, that's as simple as, simple as I can put it. I think so. Um, you know, and both of them threw very well this summer. Uh, they made strides in, in the you know in the things that you want young pitchers to 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 make strides in 
uh, you know, DL Hall's command was was much better. The stuff has always been there. I think that's you know that's been the biggest uh, question for him is harnessing his his stuff. The delivery is good. Um, you know, I think you know he he hasn't pitched a ton. Um, you know, so I think that's the only thing that's holding him back. And I think we all saw what Grayson Rodriguez can do. You know, on on a big stage in the futures game. Uh, the stuff is ridiculous. Uh, he, you know, even though he's he's a big dude, he's super athletic on the mound. Uh, so he he looks every bit like a future frontline starter. You know, he just needs to you know pitch at higher levels. Um, you know, and I I could see you know one full season in 2021, and then he's ready to really impact that. That rotation in 2022, if you told me that he's going to pitch well enough and be one of those like super young guys who reaches the big leagues next year, it wouldn't shock me. Again, there's no reason to rush him. Um, so I could see, like I said, the Orioles making a nice step forward in 2021. And then in 2022, things get really interesting, and you start getting a guy like Grayson Rodriguez really impacting uh, a major league roster that already has some of these, these other arms and, and, and the position players we've already talked about hitting the big leagues. So, with the Orioles draft this year, they had the number two pick, and it was widely agreed upon that they were going to take Austin Martin, and then they take Heston Kerstad. And a lot of us here in Baltimore said, who? And then you find out he's the best lefty bat in the draft, has a ton of power. What can you tell us about Heston Kerstad, and how quickly can he move through the system? Yeah, well, so I think it's one of those things where the Orioles – found the, a balance between saving money so they could go after players later in the draft. Um, you know, it was something that, you know, Mike Elias helped do in Houston uh, a couple times over the, in the bonus pool system and, and a guy with a ton of talent. Um, and I think that's what, why they ended up taking Kerstad. And, you know, he, interestingly enough, he took, he was a guy, his first couple of years in college was, you know, power over hit. There were concerns, you know, that they're swing and miss. And then he made some huge adjustments and came out of the gate looking like perhaps the best, you know, or one of the best all-around college hitters. And had there been a regular full season of college baseball last year, you know, I wonder whether or not Kerstad would have been a guy who would have fit at number two naturally and not as a, like, reach to save some money. So, uh, you know, I think the Orioles think he's that guy. Now, unfortunately, they haven't been able to see him uh so uh, you know in person so he needs to go out and play um i think that you know typically a college guy doesn't take as long we'll have to wait and see if if you know any of the previous sort of holes in his swing uh pop back up as he makes the transition to hitting with wood regularly and, and the pro game but you know i think he's the kind of guy that you know maybe you send him to advance day ball to start and he's in double a at the end of his first full year and then you know then we're talking about 2022 as a you know possibility maybe more beginning of 2023 just because he's yeah, he's he's worked out and things like that but you know he hasn't faced competitive pitching in quite some time now and i think for not just for heston kerstad but for baseball uh, overall we're gonna have to wait and see what uh what the layoff has done for a lot of these draftees 
Well, then aside from Kerstad with that with that Orioles 2020 draft class, who is the player that you're most excited about from that draft class that the Orioles took? Hmm. Well, you know, uh, I should pick my, my nephew, Kobe Mayo, right? Um, I was going to ask you about him next, actually. We are not related, uh, although <laughs> we already have plans to make that joke over and over again as he makes his climb to the big leagues. Um, he's very interesting. Uh, I think the guy I would probably pick, though, is Jordan Westberg, just because of the reports that I heard on him, uh, uh, how he looked uh, at instructs, and uh, another sort of big, strong, physical shortstop. Um, everything I heard, you know, having he and Gunnar Henderson on the field together was a lot of fun. Um, obviously, they're both not going to play shortstop at the big league level, but it would be a good problem to have. Um, so I think that uh, they were able to get another first-round caliber player there uh, while then being able to, you know, spend money to sign, you know, Kobe Mayo and, and Carter Baumler. Now, Kobe Mayo, you, you brought him up, a, a Florida high school kid. He um, already has one of the top-rated infield arms in the Orioles class. He said he has a ton of raw power. Is this a guy, he plays third base, gloves not particularly sharp. Is this a guy who has a chance to stay at third base, and does he profile as a big league player in the future? Well, you don't, you don't give up, you know, almost $2 million, you know, $1.75 million. $5 million if you don't think he's going to profile as a big leaguer. Uh, That's I true. Think, yeah, I think he does. It remains to be seen what what he ends up being, right? Is he... I think he does have a chance to stay at third. Uh, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll see um, how that is. But if he ends up, say, at first, um, you know, I, I don't know whether the, there's, you know, whether the athleticism would play in left field, maybe. Um, but hey, you have Ryan Mountcastle playing left field, so That's true. why not? Um <laughs> But I think the power is going to play. So it's going to be a question of how much the hit tool comes. And is he going to be like a Joey Gallo type? I don't know. Um, he could be an Austin Riley type. Um, you know, when we're, I think we're still figuring out what Austin Riley is going to be at the big league level. But a very, I think there are some similarities there in profile. It's, it's definitely power over hit. So it's going to be a question of how much he can close up uh, those holes in, in the swing to get to the to the excuse me the very very real uh, power that he has and and was showing um, you, you know d- during his, his his time you know the summer and fall yeah another guy Orioles fans were pretty excited about coming out of the 2019 draft was Kyle Stowers and he played a little bit at Aberdeen but again not too much minor league experience for him so far. Obviously, the pandemic didn't help that. But he was the 71st pick of the 2019 draft. He's got a lot of power. Uh, he can feel a little bit, can run a little bit. Where do you see him profiling going forward and fitting into this kind of mess of outfielders and, and prospects that the Orioles have? Yeah, I mean, it's you know, it's one of those things where I think you know we needed to see what he would do for a longer period of time, uh, right? Because you try not to put too much weight into a pro debut after a long college season. You know, he had a really good junior year at Stanford. Uh, you know, track record for hitters out of Stanford is inconsistent across baseball. Um, but there are some, some, as you've said, some sort of interesting tools there. I, 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 I want to see him play a full season you know, at, at a higher level. 
uh, to see how he can make adjustments. That's going to be the biggest thing is uh, can he make adjustments, you know, in the same way Kobe Mayo, you know, you want to see is will he make enough adjustments so he hits enough. You know, you, you, you can't tap into your power if you're not making contact. Yep. And it's not like his strikeout rate was so insane, but is he going to be one of these, like, three true outcome kind of guys where it's walk, strike, a homer? Um, yeah, we'll see. But there are some very intriguing tools there. I just, you know, I, I'd like to see him go out and do it with Wood over the course of a full year before getting too excited about whether or not those tools are going to play. Jonathan, before we let you go, and this has been great, so we really appreciate you coming on today. Uh, you mentioned a lot of these top-line prospects could be reaching the big leagues at the, in the 2022 season. Now, that's just when they're going to be starting to kind of make a name for themselves. When can we realistically expect the Orioles to get back into contention in the American League East? Yeah, I mean, it's hard because you know, one of the things that you, can't, you have to take into account is the fact that there are a lot of good teams in the American League East. Yeah. Um, I mean, and every other team in the division has shown signs of of, of being good, right? I, I think most people expect the Red Sox to, you know, that this was an aberration uh, and that they're going to be, that they should be, you know, at least competitive again. And then, you know, we saw what the Rays did. We know what the Yankees are capable of, and the Blue Jays made the playoffs. So um, it there there's a lot of sort of... Um, upstream swimming the Orioles are going to have to do. Um, I think that they're going to be the kind of team that, you know, slowly but surely it's going to start with being like, even by, say, the second half of next year, they may be the kind of team that no one wants to play. Sort of like the Padres Mm -hmm. uh, last year, a couple years ago even, where, you know, they'd be like, oh, there's a lot of talent here. They just need to play and and figure it out. Uh, But because they're so young, and so loose, like, you're not going to want to play them. It's going to be really competitive. Um, so I, I think, you know, if you want to be conservative, I would say 2023. Um, but I think in 2022, the, the, they should be a lot of fun to watch. And then, you know, any, anything can happen. Um, but I'm just trying to weigh how competitive the division they're in. Uh, maybe they can try to, you know, force baseball to realign so they can get to a division where they have a better chance of winning. Uh, we used to talk about that in the in the early <laughs> 2000s with the Yankees and Red Sox facing off mm-hmm. every year. But, uh, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining our program today. We certainly had a great time talking about some Orioles prospects. Uh, you have a great weekend, and hopefully we'll get to talk to you again soon. Sounds good, guys. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Take care. And that was John. Sorry, I turned my mic down, set it up. That was Jonathan Mayo of MLB.com and MLBpipeline.com going over the Orioles' top 10 prospects. Gave us a lot of exciting intel on Adley Rutschman and Gunnar Henderson, Jordan Westberg, uh, Grayson Rodriguez, D.L. Hall. ton of great stuff that I think that... And his optimism for these prospects, Zach, uh, has me excited. Uh, because a lot of people are still saying, oh, 2024, 2025 is when you can expect the Orioles to be good. That's a seven-year rebuild. I mean, that's really, really, it's a seven-year rebuild. So to hear him say twenty, the second half of 2021 and then 2022, that's exciting. How, what was your take off of that segment? Yeah, Jonathan's incredible, and his, and his partner Jim Callis, who does the MLB pipeline with him as well, is incredible. Those guys know about more prospects than probably anyone on earth. They're incredible. But 
Yeah, I, I do think his timeline was pretty realistic. I do think 2022, maybe 2023 is where the Orioles really take that next step. But I do think the Orioles realistically will try to compete with what they have in 2021. They're not going to try to lose games or, or not try as hard as maybe they have been in the past two years. They're going to get some guys in that lineup like Iglesias and, and Mancini's coming back, and they have a, a very powerful lineup. They're maybe not going to sign some big free agents or make any big trades, but realistically, they're going to try to compete with what they have. So I think that timeline of maybe 2022, 2023 is, is about right. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff coming. There's a lot of guys coming up, and it's going to be really exciting to watch them, you know, grow. And just to put a little bit of clarity on Zach's comments there, folks, the Orioles weren't trying to lose games the last couple of years. It's more so that the emphasis has not been on winning. And he th- he thinks, and I agree, that in 2021, from the top down to the bottom, there's going to be more of an emphasis on winning in this organization. So they were not trying to lose. Yeah, so what I mean by that essentially is Mike Elias is not going to go out there and try to add the best talent possible to win as a team like the New York Yankees would. That's just not where the Orioles are at right now, and and that's something Michael Elias shouldn't be doing. But Michael Elias isn't going to try to make the team better at you know in every place he can at the current time but it, w- it will come that's that's my point there the players are not going out there and trying to lose I would never say that because that's certainly not true but and Brandon Hyde definitely trying to win but Michael Elias is not going to give the team the optimal talent that he even could to to you know win games in, in 2020 because they knew it was pretty unrealistic but yeah definitely not trying to lose as far as the players go well and if you're not trying to lose with fantasy football and you need your fantasy footballs, your fantasies fulfilled, Pressbox's own Ken Zalas is the number three ranked fantasy expert in the entire country. Terrible segue, but I did my best. Sorry, guys. And he joins Glenn and Kyle every Thursday, 1130 a.m. for the Pressbox Fantasy Football Show. Listen to the show at pressboxonline.com slash radio or watch the show and get your own fantasy questions in at facebook.com slash pressboxsports. That's the Pressbox Fantasy Football Show with Ken Zalas every Thursday, 1130 a.m. Brought to you by CCBC, Wise Markets, Glory Days Grill, and the U.S. Army. And speaking of football, if you can't be there for Baltimore football games next this season, the next best thing is to at least be with each other virtually to talk about them with Pressbox's Project Game Day. Glenn Clark is with you at halftime of every game, and he's joined post-game by a panel of experts, which will include Ken Zalas and the NFL chick, Sarita Hubbard. Find all shows at Facebook.com slash PressBoxSports and post-game at PressBoxOnline.com slash radio. Come vent your frustrations, sing the praises of the purple and black, or explain why everything is the ref's fault all season long the Steelers don't want to blame the rest for anything this year but we will we'll talk about that later uh, tomorrow night Glenn and Rita are with you for the Baltimore New England Sunday night battle that's press boxes project game day every game day this season brought to you by wise markets and the US Army sorry again for my terrible segue into the live read we're gonna get another break here and when we come back we're gonna talk about the Orioles fu- future at shortstop before the Boston sports journalist Sean McAdam joins the program Looking for an easy family meal? Glory Days Grill offers patio dining along with to-go and online ordering. They're open from 11 a.m. to 9 p.m. every day. Visit glorydaysgrill.com for a location near you. Glory Days Grill is here to serve you and thank you for your support as you stay local and stay positive. Hashtag GDG at home. Hashtag Glory Days Strong. 
For more than 100 years, Chesapeake Employers Insurance has been helping Maryland businesses keep their workers safe. With competitive pricing and an AM Best, A- financial strength rating, it's no surprise that Chesapeake Employers is Maryland's largest writer of workers' comp insurance. At the end of every workday, someone's waiting for your safe return. Connect with your agent or visit CEIWC.com. Looking for a simple holiday meal? Try Chick-fil-A Catering. From Chick-fil-A nuggets to mac and cheese, enjoy a variety of tray options sized perfectly for your get-together. Order through the Chick-fil-A app and bring smiles to your family gathering. Availability and order requirements vary. See restaurant for details. If you can't be there for Baltimore football games this season, the next best thing is to at least be with each other virtually to talk about them. With Pressbox's Project Game Day, I'm Glenn Clark, and I'm with you at halftime of every game. And then I'm joined post-game by a panel of experts, including Ken Zalis and the NFL chick Sarita Hubbard. Find all shows at Facebook.com slash PressBoxSports and post-game also at PressBoxOnline.com slash radio. Come vent your frustrations, sing the praises of the purple and black, or explain why everything is just the ref's fault all season long that's press boxes project game day every game day this season brought to you by wise markets and the u.s army if you're looking to make an impact there's no better place to do that than the u.s army whether your goal is to fight and cure deadly diseases develop technologies or seek adventures across the globe the army is where all of that can happen and so much more the army is a team of a million individuals working together to take on the most complex problems in the nation and the world and to win ask yourself What's your warrior? Go to army.com slash Baltimore to find out. To learn more, contact your local Army recruiter and find us on social media at U.S. Army Baltimore. Hey, Dad, can we try one of those hoagie things? (sighs) Sorry, son. We aren't hoagie people. What do you mean? Son, we're Royal Farms sub people, like my daddy was and his daddy before him, like you and me and all the folks we know. Gee, Dad, I never thought about it like that. So you're saying hoagie people are... Aliens, son. They're aliens. Royal Farm subs are Baltimore's best. Real fresh, real fast, Royal Farms. The biggest pro wrestling stars today and all time all have one thing in common. You've heard them on Jobbing Out. Brett the Hitman Hart. Good to be on the show. Adam Cole. How are you guys doing today? Matt Riddle. Yeah, man. Thanks, man. Broken Matt Hardy. Excellent. The bad guy, Scott Hall. Mm, hey, yo. Keith Lee. Appreciate you guys having me, man. Bill Goldberg. My pleasure. Charlotte. Thank you so much for having me. Mick Foley is with us. This is the greatest name for a wrestling show I've ever heard. MJF. I'm glad you're happy I'm on this show because I'm freaking miserable. Le champion! Chris Jericho. Le champion. AJ, Aaron, Brandon, and Glenn are talking pro wrestling every week on Jobbing Out. Find it at PressBoxOnline.com slash radio, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Welcome back to the Bat Around, coming to you from the Chesapeake Employers Insurance Studio. As always, I'm Paul Valley. Join, joining me today, again, as always, is Zach Goodman. And Zach, our Orioles banter segment today, and we might do a lot of this, talking about different positions for the Orioles in, uh, during this offseason. We're going to talk about the future at shortstop. Uh, we only have about 10 minutes to do this, so we'll try and do it fairly quickly. Um, as we all know, the Orioles picked up the option of Jose Iglesias, but as we also all know, he's not the future at shortstop for the Baltimore Orioles. He's just the the guy right now. Um, so, and there's not a lot of guys 
at the top levels of the minor leagues that are ready to play. Maybe Mason McCoy, but he doesn't profile as an everyday player. He's more of a utility guy, I think, at the big league level. So the first guy I'm going to start with is a guy who I think is the future at shortstop, and that's Gunnar Henderson, uh, slash 259, 331, 370, and 29 games at rookie golf with the rookie Golf Coast Orioles in 2019. From all the reports given, he was the Orioles' most impactful player at the alternate training site, aside from Adley Rutschman. Draws comparisons to Corey Seager with his left-handed swing. Uh, his arm and glove has the arm and glove to stick at shortstop, but he could grow physically out of the position, may have to uh, move over to third base. What are your thoughts on Gunnar Henderson? We just talked a lot about him with Jonathan Mayo. Yeah, I, I didn't love the pick when, when Michael Elias made it. I'm not a huge fan of high school guys because of the risk that comes with them. Of course, there's a lot more injury risk because they have a lot more time to develop in the minors than, than college guys do. But Gunnar Henderson has all the tools. He might end up being a five-tool player. I mean, he, he's very close to that. But like you said, he, and, and Mayo said too, he's a bigger guy and he might profile at third base. I actually think Kyle Seeger over Corey Seeger might be a more fair uh, kind of comparison for him, being that big left-handed power bat. He's got a ton of power, and, and, and so should Gunnar Henderson when, when it uh, comes time. He's in the majors. But I, I think I, I like him a lot. I think there's still a lot of development to be done. There's going to be a lot of levels he'll hit. I don't think he'll be in the majors you know, in a, in a few years. I think Jonathan Mayo said something like 2022 makes sense. But you know, I, I think – all the tools are there. If he puts it all together, he's going to be a really good player. I do see him more of as a, th- as a third baseman, but you know, I, I I really think it's all there for him. Well, another guy, Jordan Westberg, who was uh, taken in the compensation a round thirtieth overall by the Orioles in twenty twenty, uh, showed gap to gap power down in the instructs uh, in Sarasota slash two eighty five, three eighty five, four forty six, and three se- seasons at Mississippi State. He hit three twenty six with four home runs and fourteen RBIs in the Cape Cod Summer League, which is the premier wooden bat collegiate summer league in the entire country good speed strong arm good glove could keep him at shortstop long term developing power he could hit 20 25 home runs in the major leagues maybe more because because of the juiced baseball he's one of the guys that a lot of people were super excited about when the Orioles took him if, if it's not Gunnar Henderson it very well could be this guy but you could see both of those guys on the left side of the infield one playing short one playing third what are your thoughts on Jordan Westberg and his ability to stay at short for the Orioles yeah there's been a lot of talk about how great of an athlete Westberg is I mean he's a shortstop first and foremost but the guy is probably going to have a bunch of versatility otherwise maybe even in center field third base Orioles probably want to keep him at shortstop I don't know what their plans are yet but like you said, developing power, I think he could easily turn into a 20, 30 home run guy at some point in his career. Um, the only concern I have with him is the really high strikeout numbers. Strikeout. Yeah, it's, it's a big concern, 20.9%. Yeah, I think that's something you look at and you say, he's got a lot of time to fix it, You know, maybe two years, three years before he's in the majors, and he does have time to fix it and get better, get better at plate discipline. Ryan Malcastle, we saw the Orioles kind of train him to be better uh, with his plate discipline when he made the majors, so I have no doubt that Westberg can become better there, but again, another guy where all the tools are there. He's a great athlete, he can run, strong arm, probably sticks it short. I would really think he would stick it short. And, and you know, if he can just bring down the, the strikeouts and get the contact up a little bit, I think he's going to be a really solid player. Remind 
reminds me a lot just the way he looks and the way he plays the game of Trevor Story. We talked about that a little bit on the show in the past. I was, um, I was actually going to say J.J. <clears throat> Hardy. I have I, I it's something. I think he's me. a better athlete than J.J. Hardy. Was kind of uh, kind of flat footed, uh, like he ran kind of ran in mud. Uh, but I, I I get where you're coming from with that. Uh, Anthony Servideo, Servideo, however you want to pronounce it, however he pronounces it. Seventy fourth pick in the 2020 draft. One of the better defensive shortstops in in college. I said he's premiered defensively. Uh, good plate discipline has speed. Struggled mightily in the Cape Cod League. Jim Callis said he looked overmatched. However, he made adjustments this past spring, got off to a hot start. He already had a career-high five home runs in just 17 games to go along with his 390 batting average for Ole Miss before the shutdown. This is a guy who has the glove to play shortstop in the major leagues, but he's going to have to prove he can hit if he wants to keep his name in the conversation. Yeah, he's got a great swing. I love. I absolutely love the left-handed swing. It's super smooth. It's, it's pretty long. It could use some shortening, but I think his swing is is the first thing that stands out about Servideo to me. Um, but it's it's kind of the flashiness that Servideo plays with that sets him apart from some of these guys. And I think maybe why the Orioles liked him a little bit. Very flashy in the field. Always trying to make your diving play or your 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 jumping throw. That's just kind of the player he is. And he plays with a lot of energy. Um, and he's someone that. I, again, the bat is going to have to develop, but you did talk about that great uh, tear he went on in, in spring this year, and actually he was in the top five of college baseball war. So he actually was very, very renowned as far as uh, that you know the war stat goes. So I, I, I think there's, again, a lot of development to go on here, but a guy... If the glove stays good and if he can still run like he can, I think he's going to, again, turn out to be a pretty solid player, maybe at the worst a utility type. I mean, I, I definitely think this is a major league player. I, I think he's a major league player, too, maybe even has to, if he has to move over to second base because he played a little bit of second base. Uh, but they moved him all over uh, at, o, at Ole Miss. So uh, Adam Hall, a guy who's already in the organization, second-round pick in 2017 out of um, – A.B. Lucas Secondary School, uh, 56 stolen bases in 187 career minor league games. I've said a lot that he reminds me of Brian Roberts, 301 hitter with a, 30, with a 380 on base percentage his career. He's played most of his games at shortstop, but he's a better defender at second base. I think he could be the future at second base for the Orioles, but he's playing a lot of shortstop for them right now, um, so he has to be in the conversation. What are your thoughts on Adam Hall? Yeah, I like the Brian Roberts comparison because it's a guy who can really field and he can really run. Um, and, and, you know, Hall is a guy that I, I don't get too excited about him because there's not really a tool that, that perfectly stands out to me, but he does have really solid hands. He is really fast. But I think the lack of power is where the drawback comes with, with Adam Hall. He just is not going to hit almost any home runs for you. It, it, probably pretty low double and triple numbers, too. So I think that's where you get a little bit concerned. But I think this is a guy who could definitely make it as just kind of a slap hitter, a guy who puts singles through the left field hole, you know, puts singles into right field, kind of hit to all fields, and, and just be – a slap hitter essentially and, and once he gets on base be that stolen base threat and you know play a pretty solid second base i really think he's he's you know not not anything special but he's a guy who really does everything decently yeah he, he's a guy i'm very excited about i think he'll get a crack at maybe double a uh in 2021 assuming there's a minor league season so somebody i'm excited about but again i think he profiles more at second base uh than anything else and the last guy we're going to talk about uh, quickly is Taron Vavra. He came over in the Michael Givens trade, hit 349 in college and 313 in two minor league seasons, so he has a bat. Uh, the power's not quite there yet. Glove is major league ready now. For all intents and purposes, from what we hear, his glove is major league ready now, but another guy probably at second base, but he's played 81 games at shortstop in his career compared to 57 at second base. Um, who? What are we looking at with, with Taron Vavra? 
could he make the major league roster in 2021 um, as a utility guy? Yes, we know the Orioles love versatility. That's kind of been one of their calling cards so far, um, you know, as far as the Orioles have gone under the Mike Elias regime. And I think this is another guy that you're going to look at in future years, kind of playing everywhere. I'm not sure if he'll, you know, be able to cement immediately once he makes in the, in the majors a, a starting position. But they tried him in center field in, in the Bowie camp over the summer. Um, he's played center field in a few of the minor league games in the past. So this is a guy who has versatility. I'm not sure that I'd be ready to call him right now the future shortstop, but I really do like him. I really think he's going to hit. You know, again, I talked about it before with Graffinino, but he's another 23-year-old that's most likely going to be an A-ball next year, which is a little bit concerning. Usually like to see your 23-year-olds be, you know, in double-A by then or even in triple-A if they're more advanced. So I think that that's a little bit concerning to me and missing the whole year this year is, you know, going to bring down his ETA a little bit. But I do really like this guy. He can run. He can field and I, th- I think his bat's really going to come along and I, I think he's going to be maybe a 280 hitter in the majors well yeah and I've always found it a little bit um odd that people think he could be on, on, on the roster next year because he really hasn't played above a ball I don't think so yeah he, he, ha- he really hasn't played above a ball so to me it, it would be a huge stretch to put him on the Orioles 2021 roster but that's up to him to prove it in spring training and prove it at the minor league level now Zach you were going to give us uh, a preview of the print edition of press box over here while I get our friend Sean McAdam from the Boston Sports Journal on the line all right, so the latest edition of Press Box is available now. On the cover, we celebrate the 20th anniversary of the Ravens' Super Bowl 35 championship run with Ray Lewis, Brian Billick, Trent Dilfer, Jonathan Ogden, and more helping to explain how the magical season happened. Also inside, Todd Karpovich profiles Ryan Malcastle and the role he can play as a cornerstone for the Orioles' rebuild. Press Box is available for free at over 500 area locations, including 60 Royal Farm stores, and you can always find the entire edition as well as the best daily coverage of the Orioles, Ravens, and Terps at PressBoxOnline.com. Uh, very nice there, Zach. Thank you so much for that. Joining us now from the Boston Sports Journal, he covers the Red Sox for, for that publication, we have Sean McAdam on the line. Sean, how are you today? I'm good, guys. Thanks. How are you? We're doing well. Thanks for joining our program today. Uh, the first thing we want to talk about is Alex Cora. The manager for the Red Sox was involved in that um, in that sign-stealing scandal with the Astros and lost his job because of it. But it kind of seemed like it was the Red Sox plan all along to bring him back for the 2021 season. Was Sam Fole really in consideration, or was he more of a red herring to save face for the organization? Um, no, I, I think Sam Fold was very much in the running right down to the end. Uh, I, I know from the outside, the perception is that, you know, from the day they mutually agreed to part ways back in mid-January, that Cora was always going to be on the on-deck circle, and his return could have been, uh, you know, scripted all that time. I don't believe that to be true. Um, I think that the Red Sox did uh, allow Heim Bloom, their chief baseball officer, to make this choice. It's no secret that ownership uh, favored a reunion with Alex Cora. He was tremendously popular with John Henry and Tom Warner and President CEO Sam Kennedy. And had it been their call, uh, then yes, this would have been a done deal and a fait accompli a long time ago. I think Bloom, to his credit, went into this with his 
mind open. He did not have the history with Alex Cora that others in the organization did. He was brought in at the end of October last year, um, spent uh, you know the better part of his first winter and offseason acclimating himself and getting to know everyone in the organization, including Alex Cora, and enjoyed that process. But he didn't have those ties that others did. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's why when this search began, um, he regarded it as an open field and talked to eight or nine people, some of them a couple of times. His history with Sam Fold is pretty documented. They spent three years together uh, with the Rays. I think they align philosophically in a lot of other ways. <clears throat> um, but I think he also knew that he had to do his due diligence without Scora and reached out. They had some phone conversations. Uh, Bloom and general manager Brian O'Halloran went down to visit Cora in Puerto Rico. And I think what they wanted to hear was what happened in Houston and how do we know it's not going to happen here again? And I think Cora sufficiently answered those questions. And as much as uh, Bloom might have had a soft spot for Sam Fold and, and been willing to uh, take a bit of a gamble to hire someone who's never been a coach, never mind a manager, to come into a big market team and take over a high-profile pro franchise, I think the more he got familiar and comfortable with Cora, uh, the more he realized that it was going to be hard to go in another direction. This is a guy who only two years ago had led uh, the Red Sox to 108 wins and a World Series championship. Uh, that tends to uh, put a pretty big thumb on the scale when you're evaluating two candidates, the other of whom has virtually no experience. Yeah, so I, how you doing, Sean? It's Zach Goodman. Um, so Zach. Mookie Betts obviously um, you know, went over to the Dodgers in that trade that brought over Alex Verdugo and Jeter Downs uh, for the Red Sox. And the Red Sox were kind of banking on the fact that he would leave in free agency and then come back to the Red Sox in the 2021 season. And uh, we have a quote here uh, from the, the president of operations for the Red Sox, in which it was Sam Kennedy, in which he said, I'd be less than honest if I didn't sense a disappointment and maybe a closure and finality to it. Look, we have a plan. We're very confident in the direction of our baseball operation, but it's obviously very hard to see Mookie Betts sign long-term somewhere else. What's the kind of feeling uh, around the Red Sox in, in this Mookie Betts ordeal and that they weren't able to get him back? Yeah, it was obviously a failing on the part of the organization. Uh, either Mookie Betts did not enjoy his stay in Boston for five years and was bound and determined to go elsewhere as a free agent, or the Red Sox never put a <clears throat> competitive offer in front of him that would have tempted him to sign an extension and, and be a Red Sox player for his entire career. Either way, the Red Sox get kind of a black mark there because, uh, you know, this is a big market team with a lot of resources and revenue. And frankly, they should never be outbid on one of their own players or feel that they can't be uh, competitive on a, in, on a level playing field to sign basically anybody they want. Uh, you know, they are one of the handful of... Uh, uh, of most profitable teams in the game. Uh, that's going to be even more so in the coming weeks and months when they finalize a merger with Red Ball, uh, the uh, venture capital company that Billy Bean is part of. 
That's going to infuse the organization with an additional billion-plus uh, of investment. So people are scratching their head and saying, you know, this is not the Kansas City Royals or the Milwaukee Brewers where you have to kind of pick and choose, and there comes a point where you can't afford to keep a player. That should never be the issue here. And the fact that, um, you know, that they either weren't willing or couldn't convince Mookie to stay, uh, I, I think is going to be a stain on the organization for some time. And that's particularly true because the Dodgers are positioned to be perennial World Series uh, contenders for the foreseeable future. So it's not like, uh, while he is 3,000 miles away and playing in the other league, uh, Mookie Betts is not going to disappear off the landscape, and his time with the Dodgers is going to, uh, you know, is going to be a reminder that the Red Sox uh, failed when it came to Betts. Well, and certainly Mookie Betts is going to be a reminder that this is where your team could have been if you had kept him. Uh, and with that in mind, the the, the best way for the Red Sox to put this behind them is for them to get back into contention. Uh, now, the AL East is certainly a very tough to di- division to do that, and with three teams that made the playoffs this year, and the Orioles are a couple of years away from being a contender themselves, what do the Red Sox need to do in this offseason? They obviously have to address their, their pitching staff, right? Yeah, that's priority one. Uh, they were second to last in the American League in <coughs> staff ERA, um, they did not have qualified major league pitchers on the mound for a good chunk of the 2020 season. They just didn't. They had uh, cast-offs and journeymen and kids who weren't ready, and uh, th- their pitching staff was an embarrassment. That's not, uh, that's not an overstatement. So that has to be priority one this winter. Um, I do not expect that they're going to chase after Trevor Bauer and, you know, try to outbid all the other teams there. Uh, Doing that simply gets them right back into the position they were a year ago, trying to get back under the luxury tax, having to move Mookie Betts to do so, cutting payroll. Uh, I I think they have learned that you cannot, uh, you would think that this would have been a lesson learned a long time ago, but you can't spend your way to a championship. What you can do is do what the Dodgers have done. They are the model franchise, ironically, with now with Mookie Betts. But they are the model franchise of a big market team that has a good-sized payroll, but also one that has a very consistent and productive minor league system that is annually spitting out the likes of Walker Bueller and Gavin Lux and uh, Tony Gonsolin and Corey Seager and uh, Bellinger and all this uh, homegrown talent uh, to the point where if there comes a time when you decide that, no, we're not going to re-sign a 34-year-old Justin Turner, but we have a replacement within our system that we can pay the major league minimum the next couple of years. I mean, that's how you get to the point uh, where the Red Sox want to get, which is to be a consistent World Series contender year after year after year. Not have windows of competition where, well, you know, two of our stars are headed to free agency, so we have to go all in to win now because then we have to rebuild. You don't want to be in a position where you're ever rebuilding. You want to be, you know, replenishing from within. And the goal is to not only build up the Major League roster so that it's competitive, but that there's a minor league system supporting it 
to consistently uh, provide young and, by, uh, by extension, inexpensive talent year after year. Well, yeah, and you mentioned that 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 pitching staff is being the the number one priority here as far as the starting rotation. Now, the bullpen um, they weren't they weren't any better. The bullpen posted five seven nine ERA. They had thirteen blown saves. Do they have a plan to address the bullpen? Now, like you just said, um, going out there and spending a ton of money on these top free agents really isn't an option because of the luxury tax. So, what do they need to do to attack that bullpen and make sure that it's not what it was in twenty twenty? Yeah, just a slight correction. The luxury tax is not much of an issue here. They they are currently uh, on right. pace. They've got about a hundred and seventy-ish million. So they're some thirty million dollars under that first threshold. And I don't think they're going to get real close to that. Nor should they, because that would be uh, you know sort of a waste of resources in a year when they're not going to go from last place to first. I, I think they have to look at this as a uh, you know, they certainly need to be more competitive, uh, get back to 500, maybe be in the running for a wild card this year. That would be a realistic goal. Trying to go from, you know, what would have been the equivalent of about 68 wins uh, in this season to, you know, 95-plus that it would take to win the division is not the way to, to, to approach this. So I think they're going to go more gradually. But fortunately for them, they're in a position where, uh, you know, in terms of the bullpen, you guys know uh, that apart from the, you know, Liam Hendricks and Brad Hand types that are out there, there are always a million relievers that you can invest in. And I think, you know, a lot of this is going to be quantity as well as quality. Go out and not only take advantage of the free agent market, but there are going to be a ton of guys who get non-tendered in about three weeks that is going to add to uh, the number of options that they have. So um, I, I think they'll just kind of cover the waterfront in terms of what they see out there uh, and uh, guys that can help them build that bullpen back to respectability. They do have a couple of, you know, they have three or four arms that they can depend on there, whether it's Matt Barnes or Darwin's and Hernandez or, um, you know, Josh Taylor uh, Ryan Brazier, those four form a pretty decent back end, but they need to supplement that with additional depth. And I think that, you know, as I said, free agents and the non-tenders will give them plenty of opportunities to find relatively affordable and undervalued guys at a time when the free agent market could crash. You know, we, we've seen a real retrenchment in that the last two years, and that was before the pandemic, a shortened season, and no fans that have sent revenues uh, plummeting. So there are going to be a lot of choices up there that aren't going to cost a lot of money, and I think they're going to you know, try to scoop up four or five of them and, and see which guys can help. Yeah, I want to swing over to the farm system for a little bit because you talked about how the Red Sox are aiming to build a more consistently producing farm system. And one of the guys that is new there is Nick York, the 17th overall pick of the 2020 draft. And and a guy that not really too many people had ranked very highly. And it was kind of a surprise when the Red Sox took him. What do the Red Sox see in Nick York and why did they think he can be the front runner in this in this organizational uh, prospect system? Yeah, they saw a guy who um, they just love the bat-to-ball skills. They, they think he is going to be a premier offensive uh, middle infielder. 
you know, it's unlikely, even though he's played some shortstop, that he's going to stick there in part because they've got Sander Bogarts in the prime of his career and under control for the next five seasons. Uh, but there's, uh, and obviously York coming out of high school has got some uh, significant development time left. He's not going to be part of the equation, I would think, and pro- until at earliest 2023. But we've seen how fast, um, you know, elite prospects can go through a system now, and they just loved his offensive game. Uh, you know, he's, he's uh, probably not any better than an average defender, whether he ends up at second or third. Uh, but they see a guy who could really be um, a shot in the arm offensively uh, down the road. But they've got, you know, some other guys that are closer to contributing. Jeter Downs, you mentioned, is part of the uh, the, the Mookie Betts return. Um, it wouldn't surprise me to see him be a factor maybe uh, by midseason next year. He really has not played a triple a didn't get that opportunity last year obviously when the minor league season got wiped out so he's not far off um you know they've got a kid named tristan cassis who's probably their top prospect who's you know they see as maybe a freddie freeman type at first base big strong left-handed line drive hitter with some pop um so there there are some uh some pieces in the minor league system but uh, as you noted earlier, you know, they have to fill some gaping holes in that pitching staff, you know, on a, other than some openings now in center field and second base, they've got a pretty good offensive team uh, on a day-to-day basis in their lineup, but it's about developing pitching what this organization has not done. They, they've been extraordinarily proficient in developing position players, um, there was a time about a year ago when they could have fielded a completely homegrown starting lineup, one through nine, DH catcher, every spot in the lineup uh, occupied by somebody that they had developed. But as good as they've been in that area, they have been woeful in, in, uh, in developing starting pitching. And that's one thing that Bloom has to change for his plan to work. Well, one of the big arms missing from that starting rotation is Chris Sale. He had Tommy John surgery. Uh, do you have any updates on his recovery, and could they expect to see him in the second half of this season, or is it probably more likely 2022? No, he. he I, I think you know June 1st is probably a realistic date for him. He underwent surgery uh, at the very end of March, Tommy John surgery. Um, so if you use even the conservative end of the recovery timetable for that procedure, you know, it goes anywhere from 12 to 15 months. 15 months would put you right about June 1st. So even if they're ultra-cautious, which they should be with sale, given the investment and the importance of him going forward, he could be back by June 1st. Um, He has hit all his steps and milestones so far. He is throwing lightly. Uh, He lives about... uh, 15 miles south of Fort Myers, where the Red Sox have spring training. So he's been able to uh, be at the facility and complex year-round to build back and rehab. Uh, But they're obviously going to be very careful with him. And then the other question mark is a guy that Orioles fans know, Eduardo Rodriguez, who missed all of 2020 first with COVID-19, and then a case of myocarditis, inflammation of the heart as an after-effect. Um, of, of contracting the virus. Um, so th- they need comebacks from both those guys. 
if you add them in with Nathan Avaldi, then by midseason you have the makings of a, at least a competitive starting rotation, uh, which they most def- definitely did not have a year ago. Well, and you mentioned that, that the offense is is solid. They were fifth in the they they were first in the AL and hits, fifth in runs, sixth in home runs. They're losing probably losing Jackie Bradley Jr. It's all in all likelihood he's going to sign someplace else in free agency. Andrew Benintendi didn't play after August 11th. When he did play, he was 4 for 39. That's a 102 batting average. He was dreadful uh, in 2020. Uh, are they still leaning on Benintendi, or is this a, a, a show-me type season for him? Are they ready to move on from Benintendi? Well, I, you know, I, I think that had Benintendi perhaps had a better year, um, then they might have used him uh, to perhaps trade for a young starting pitcher with similar service time. But it would, you know, as you correctly pointed out, Benintendi had a nightmarish season. Not only did he miss the last, uh, you know, seven weeks or so with a rib injury, but when he played, he was woeful at the plate with four hits in about three weeks of, of game. So um, trying to trade him now would not be uh, productive because you'd be trading him with his value at an all-time low. They still think at 25 years old that there's some a lot of untapped potential there, that this is a guy who's probably experimented a little too much with his swing the last couple of years, and he needs to get back to being the guy he was in his first year or two with the Red Sox. You know, a solid line drive, uh, 300 hitter who has the ability to hit 20 or so home runs. He's never going to be you know, uh, uh, maybe a prototypical left fielder with a guy that could hit 30 or 35 homers, but uh, he doesn't have to be uh, if he can be the hitter that he hinted at a few years ago. So they hope that they can get him straightened out. But you're right, they do have to find somebody for center field. They they have a kid in their system they like a real lot, Jaron Duran, who um, is kind of a speed and defense guy who this past year bulked up, uh, made some adjustments to his swing, and has, and drove the ball much better than he had in his previous minor league career. But the expectation is that he, too, could be ready by midseason, uh, but they've got to have somebody who can play the position you know, for the first half and give them some depth and insurance in the outfield. I think they want to keep Verdugo in right and Benintendi in center. Um, you know, it's not unreasonable to think that they could go out and again sign Kevin Pillar to a short-term deal as sort of a placeholder until Duran is ready but at some point they've got to play you know they've got to get a comeback season uh, from Benintendi and they've got to find somebody to keep center field and the seat warm until Duran is ready. Well and that certainly shows a glaring hole left by uh, the departure of Mookie Betts. Um, this is a, this Red Sox team is a, a team that seems to be playing with a lot of ifs and buts right now. Um, coming, Looking for guys to come back from injury with Eduardo Rodriguez, Chris Sale, uh, Benintendi. So they have a lot of talent. They could do something next year. That remains to be seen. But, Sean, thank you so much for joining our program today. It was great to hear about the Red Sox here in Baltimore because we want to know what we're up against uh, for the next coming season. So thank you so much. Have a great weekend. My pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Take care. And that was Sean McAdam, who covers the Boston Red Sox for the Boston Sports Journal. And it, it's, it's obvious, Zach, that the Red Sox, it was a big 
big gaffe for them getting to trade away Mookie Betts, and then th- that dude signs with the with the Dodgers pretty quickly. I think that he pre- basically said, "If the Red Sox trade me, I'm never playing there again." It, yeah, he saw who wanted them more, and clearly the Dodgers wanted him more. And you know, Mookie Betts is a generational talent. You know, and I, I do I do defend the Red Sox a little bit. Because of who they got back. I'm a big fan of Jeter Downs. I think he'll be a stud. I'm a big fan of Alex Verdugo, and I already think he's showing what he can do. Mookie Betts is far better than those guys will ever be, and he's a generational talent. Um, But, you know, I think, like you said, Mookie just signed pretty quick. It looked like he knew exactly where he wanted to be, and uh, that's the way it played out, and the Dodgers got a really good player. Well, and they got a World Series out of it. Yep. And they're probably going to get another couple here in the next few years. Certainly certainly multiple World Series titles during his 12 years there, I think, is in the future for them. So, great move for for the... Dodgers head scratcher for the Red Sox who have a ton of money, especially knowing that they're going to be uh, partnering up with Red Ball and get an extra billion dollars in revenue. For Pete's sake, man, I wish we had something like that in Baltimore, dude. All right, so every Monday through Friday, Glenn Clark and Kyle Ottenheimer bring their pragmatic and irreverent approach to Baltimore sports via Press Box's Glenn Clark Radio. Watch the show at facebook.com slash pressboxsports, live from the Chesapeake Employers Insurance Studio, or listen to pressboxonline.com slash radio. You never know who might pop up on GCR. This week, the guys caught up with Torrey Smith, Gus Edwards, Maryland quarterback, Talia Tungavailoa, Dodgers pitcher and Catonsville native Adam Kolarik, and much more. I'm so glad. I, th- I think I got Talia's name right. I think I or Talia. I think that maybe I don't know. Talia. I, oh, I, yeah. I don't know how you get Tungavailoa out of Tagavailoa. But anyway, uh, find those interviews today in the Glenn Clark Radio Week in Review feature at PressBoxOnline.com. Again, in the Glenn Clark Radio Week in Review. Feature at PressBoxOnline.com. We have to get our third and final break. We're going to come back afterwards and close things out with a little bit of Ravens talk if you care to listen. Since masks are a part of our lives now and probably will be for a while, we might as well wear masks that celebrate our hometown and the teams and athletes we love. PressBox is offering three different types of masks, including a purple and orange Maryland flag pattern 20-inch neck gaiter, plus a Celebrate 8 purple neck gaiter honoring the MVP quarterback, and an over-the-ear two-ply Maryland flag mask featuring a faded version of the iconic state flag. These are decorative masks. They're not CDC approved, but they are perfect for hanging out and watching games this fall while supporting your favorite teams and being respectful of those around you. Get your masks right now at PressBoxOnline.com masks. That's PressBoxOnline.com masks to get yours now. If you're looking to make an impact, there's no better place to do that than the U.S. Army. Whether your goal is to fight and cure deadly diseases, develop technologies, or seek adventures across the globe, the Army is where all of that can happen and so much more. The Army is a team of a million individuals working together to take on the most complex problems in the nation and the world and to win. Ask yourself, what's your warrior? Go to army.com slash Baltimore to find out. To learn more, contact your local Army recruiter and find us on social media at U.S. Army Baltimore. Hey, Dad, can we try one of those hoagie things? (sighs) Sorry, son. We aren't hoagie people. What do you mean? Son... We're Royal Farms sub-people, like my daddy was, and his daddy before him, like you and me, and all the folks we know. Gee, Dad, I never thought about it like that. So you're saying hoagie people are... Aliens, son. They're aliens. 
Royal Farm subs are Baltimore's best. Real fresh, real fast. Royal Farms. Need your fantasies fulfilled, or do you need your fantasy football lineup filled anyway? I'm Ken Zalis, and if you missed it, I was Fantasy Pro's number three ranked fantasy expert in the entire country last year. And I'm with you every Thursday at 11.30 a.m. for the PressBox Fantasy Football Show. Listen to the show at PressBoxOnline.com slash radio, or watch the show and get your fantasy questions in at Facebook.com slash PressBoxSports. That's the PressBox Fantasy Football Show with me, Ken Zalis, every Thursday at 11.30 a.m. Brought to you by C. CCBC, Wise Markets, Glory Days Grill, and the U.S. Army. Receive a free Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich offer card as a thank you when you donate to Toys for Tots on Saturday, November 21st at any of the 12 Baltimore area Chick-fil-A Stuff the Truck event sites. Be one of the first 50 people to donate, and you also get a free t-shirt. For location list and more information, visit PressBoxOnline.com slash toy drive. That's PressBoxOnline.com slash toy drive. Masks and social distancing required. Help us stuff the truck November 21st with the Baltimore area Chick-fil-A restaurants. For more than 100 years, Chesapeake Employers Insurance has been helping Maryland businesses keep their workers safe. With competitive pricing and an AM Best, A- financial strength rating, it's no surprise that Chesapeake Employers is Maryland's largest writer of workers' comp insurance. At the end of every workday, someone's waiting for your safe return. Connect with your agent or visit CEIWC.com. The latest edition of Press Box is available now. On the cover, we celebrate the 20th anniversary of the Ravens Super Bowl 35 championship run with Ray Lewis, Brian Billick, Trent Dilfer, Jonathan Ogden, and more helping to explain how the magical season happened. Also inside, Todd Karpovich profiles Ryan Mountcastle and the role he can play as a cornerstone for the Orioles' rebuild. Press Box is available for free at over 500 area locations, including 60 Royal Farm stores. Also, you can always find the entire edition, as well as the best daily coverage of the Orioles, Ravens, and Terps at PressBoxOnline.com. All right, welcome back to the Battle Round here in the Chesapeake Employers Insurance Studio. Good show today, Zach. Jim Mayo was fantastic. Sean McAdam gave us so much knowledge about the about the Red Sox and what their plans are. I liked what he said about how the Dodgers, um, they're a big market team that builds their franchise the right way. A lot of homegrown players, and they spend a lot of money, but they spend a lot of money adding pieces rather than, on their entire roster, you know, and I, I like what he said about that because it gives me hope for the Orioles, like that the Orioles could grow all this young talent, have it come up and be sustainable big league talent, and then spend a lot of money on this pitcher or this second baseman who's going to come in and, and help you get over the hump. Yeah, I think a lot of people accuse the Dodgers all the time, and the Yankees probably too, of buying their teams. They think they have all these all this money just to completely buy their entire roster, but it's actually not really true. If you look up and down the Dodgers roster, it's so homegrown, and there's a lot of guys there that you know just were built in this farm system, and as a result of just drafting very very well. I mean, Corey Seager, Cody Bellinger. All homegrown guys, you know, Walker Bueller, Clayton Kershaw. I mean, there's just so many guys on this team that the Dodgers grew, and 
are just a result of drafting very well. So, you know, I, I like you said, it gives you hopefully what the Orioles can do. And you, I'm sure the Orioles will take a bit more of a money ball approach than the Dodgers would have. But it's 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 exciting to see what you can do with with a smaller budget and just using homegrown talent. Well, what I, what I do expect from the Orioles, I do expect them to spend money in free agency. But what I expect from them is that they're going to have so much of their talent is going to be homegrown. That the that they're going to add that final piece, whether it's in the bullpen or whether it's another starting pitcher to go along with Rodriguez and Hall, um, or somebody who can play who, who who can DH and hit thirty homers. I think that they'll spend that kind of money when they need to. Right now, they don't need to. So uh, Zach, we do have to get one more live read in here, and you um, graciously put on that mask again there. Uh, and since masks are a part of our lives now, and probably will be for a while, especially with things ramping back up. We might as well wear masks to celebrate our hometown and the teams and athletes we love. Pressbox is offering three different types of home team masks, including a purple and orange Maryland flag pattern 20-inch neck gaiter that Zach is modeling, plus a Celebrate 8 purple neck gaiter honoring the MVP quarterback, and an over-the-ear two-ply Maryland flag mask featuring a faded version of the iconic state flag. These are decorative masks. They're not CDC approved, so don't go coughing in people's faces, Zach. Uh, but they're perfect for hanging out and watching games this fall while supporting your teams and being respectful of those around you. Get your mask right now at PressBoxOnline.com slash masks. That's PressBoxOnline.com slash masks to get yours now. We're about to get out of here, but we, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the Ravens a little bit here. They beat the Colts last week 24-10. to I watched the game with my dad, and I love my dad. He's my best friend. He's one of my favorite people in the world. But watching games with him is a little bit painful. He's a very negative guy when it comes to uh, the Orioles, the Ravens, the Terps, pretty much any kind of Maryland sport you can think of. He's a negative Nancy when it comes to the team. Uh, he was talking about them losing the game, how they were losing even though they were tied 7-7 to in the first quarter. They won in pretty decisive fashion uh, based on a second half stifling defense and the offense finally clicking on all cylinders. What did you see from that game that had you excited moving into this week? Well, yeah, the first half, pretty rough. I, I think it's hard not to be negative about that first half. I mean, Lamar did not play well. The play calling was bad. Hollywood Brown was dropping passes. It was just all a mess. They weren't getting far on offense. Defense played great. I mean, even without Marlon Humphrey, Terrell Bond stepped right up and played great. Jimmy Smith has been fantastic this year, so underrated, and stepped up again in Marlon's place. And, uh, you know, it, it, the second half, they turned it around. They came out and threw the ball right out of the gate, which I thought was great. They completed a couple easy passes. Getting Lamar in, in, in these short passing, over-the-middle situations is the best possible scenario because that's what the receivers on the Ravens are good at. That's what Mark Andrews does well. That's what Willie Sneed does well. That's what Miles Boykin does well is these small curl routes or these flat routes out to the edges. That's what Lamar and the Ravens are going to have to be hitting on to win these bigger games because that's that's just what they do well. They run the ball. They, they, they power run. They do a lot of read option and they throw the ball short. And I think that's the, the kind of game that they should continue to play is what they did in the second half. Keep that tempo up. And, uh, you know, if the defense keeps playing great, they're going to go far. Well, interestingly enough, Jimmy Smith's doubtful Yes, for, for this week. It's got to be that Achilles. And I, I saw it's the ankle this week. Yeah, which is basically where the Achilles is. Okay. So um, 
it could be something else, but my assumption is that it's his Achilles still. And if you remember a few years back when they were depending on him to be their number one corner, and he ruptured that Achilles, it was nagging him all year, and he ruptured it in a game against the Tennessee Titans. I think that the Ravens are trying to prevent that from happening, so they're gonna they're gonna sit him out this week, and hopefully he can rest it and get a little bit healthier uh, moving into a, a big stretch of games where they're gonna be playing the Titans. Uh, the Steelers, uh, they have back-to-back Thursday night games after they play the Titans. So this is a this is a stretch here where the Ravens can really make a name for themselves and get themselves back in the playoff. Con- uh, they're in playoff contention. They're going to the playoffs. We get them back in the contention for the AFC North. The Steelers are the worst 8-0 team I've ever seen in my life. It's I, When I sat in with Glenn Clark uh, last Wednesday, he hit the nail on the head. They're a team that has happened to win all of their games. And that's really what it comes down to. Because they've needed a lot of help from the referees. They've needed a lot of lucky plays. There was a fumble by Dallas that bounced right in the mink of Fitzpatrick's hands. and uh, Yeah, it's being in the right place at the right time. But he did nothing but say, oh, excuse me, there's a ball in my, in my stomach. Uh, that's basically what happened. And the, the Cowboys, with their fourth-string quarterback, led for most of that game. This isn't to talk about the Steelers. I just think that they are susceptible. I think they have they that they could lose to the Bengals uh, this coming Sunday. The Ravens going up against the Patriots defense, who have a solid secondary, but they're one of the worst rush defenses in the NFL, which feeds right into the Ravens' strength uh, on Sunday Night Football. What are you looking for from this game, and what's your prediction? Yeah, that strong secondary too. But um, you know, Stephon Gilmore, their number one star corner, he's expected to be out in this game, so that yeah. that even helps the Ravens' passing game even more. I expect this to be a slaughter, and I'm not just saying this as a Ravens fan. I just don't think this game will be even competitive. I know Bill Belichick's great; he's been you know an incredible coach for 20 years now. But he doesn't have the the talent to make it happen this year. Cam Newton has not really played that well in in the last couple of weeks after coming back from COVID. So honestly, the, the Patriots almost just lost to the Jets. The Jets blew it very late, and I just don't see the Patriots doing much of anything against the Ravens defense. You know, uh, Marlon Humphrey's coming back. Jimmy Smith will be out, but um, you know, Tremont Williams, Marcus Peters, hopefully can hold down the fourth there. So I, I just don't see them driving at all on the Ravens' defense. And then the Ravens' offense will, will take advantage of that bad defensive line, bad linebackers, and attack the run, uh, attack with the run, and then hopefully be able to throw the ball a little bit too. So I expect a, a really big game for the Ravens. And I think the, you know, they might even break out of their shell here. I, I think the Ravens score 37, and I think the Patriots score 10. Wow, 37 to 10 over the Patriots. Now, I said earlier in the show that I am. This is the first time where I'm not really nervous about a game against the Patriots. That was a bit of a lie. That was a bit of a lie only because of the fact that I remember a game that the Ravens were supposed to slaughter the Jags on Monday Night Football earlier on in the Joe Flacco era. I think it was in 2009. And. They scored nine points. They, I think they lost the game 13-9 to on Monday Night Football in front of a live national audience. I remember that. I remember losing to the uh, winless Miami Dolphins in 2007, and that was what ultimately cost Brian Billick his job. They went. The Dolphins went 1-15 that year, and their win was against the Ravens. That's embarrassing. I don't think that the Ravens are going to lose this game. I'm hoping that they score 38 to 45 points, but I'm going to, they haven't scored 30 points in a while, so I'm going to say the Ravens 31 to 14 over the Patriots, but I don't know that it's going to be as, I I think the Ravens pull away 
in the second half. I, I think it'll be close in the first half. So 31 to seven to 14 Ravens over the Patriots. That's going to do it for us here on the batter round. Thanks again for indulging us as we talked about Ravens football to close out the show as we will do every Sunday on the batter round because we have the platform to do it. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week with a, with a line of great guests as always here on the batter round until then we'll talk soon.